0: Come on, come on. What about me? What about you? We've got 40 seconds. Come on. 45. Come on. Get, get, get. Uh, last wish, please, please, please. Last wish. I wish you had more time.
1: Hey. hey, hey,
2: All right, kids, here we go. Just a reminder, all 2021 seminars will be held in Wichita Falls, Texas this year. So if you're holding out, signing up to wait for another city to show up, uh, don't, because they're all be in Texas. Next seminar up is going to be April 16th through the 18th, and then June 11th through the 13th. For camps coming up, we have a coaching development camp in Houston on March 6th. That's going to be covering how to coach the power clean. For lifting camps, we've just added a squat camp to Dallas at Starting Strength Dallas on March 13th. We also have a couple spots available for Tampa on March 6th. That's covering the squat and the deadlift. We have a nutrition camp on the list. That's going to be March 13th in Houston at Starring Strength Houston with Bob Santana. And he'll tell you how to not be a complete fat turd and or not a skinny little insect. As usual, multiple competitions going on at Testify in Omaha. Check out our website for details, strengthlifting, strongman, and USA Weightlifting. Also, check out Starting Strength Gyms, where you can work with a coach for less than 30 bucks a session. Continue to add new cities to the list. Find a location near you or to request information about a particular location. Head over to locations.startingstrengthgyms.com. And as usual, quit hoarding all the ammo. And if you'd like any more information about anything that I've talked about, head over to startingstrength.com and check out the right-hand side of the homepage
0: Welcome back to Starting Strength Radio. We are, uh, as usual, here on Friday. And this particular Friday, we were in search of a more interesting topic than dealing with your bullshit questions like we did the past couple of times. And, uh, you know, your, your questions are at times interesting, but we have, uh, you know... I think we've got higher standards than that don't you rusty you think that oh yeah That's i mean we can do better than that we can do better than the than just
3: the, answering q a bullshit the same Broke. questions over and over same again. same questions
0: over and over again yeah we can do better than that so this time we're going to do better than that one of our uh favorite shows one of the one of the shows that uh, we got the most compliments on is uh the one where we talked with our friend scott davison uh, about, uh, what the hell did we talk about?
4: We we'll call it B-52s Just in the Cold
2: War B-52s, B-52s uh. in the
0: Cold War, something like that. So, you know, Scott came up to the gym last night, and he and I were sitting around shooting the shit, and we said, well, hell, you know, we could talk about all kinds of interesting stuff. Uh, so tonight, we're going to kind of reprise that, that first show, and we're going to talk about airplanes and weapons. Ha, <laughs> ha. Airplanes and weapons. Every guy's favorite topic. Nothing's more fun. Nothing's more fun than airplanes and weapons. So the girls are probably all saying to themselves, you know, let's go watch uh, uh, an incredible lightness of being again, you know. (laughs) And the guys are all going, yeah, airplanes and weapons. So, uh, uh, I understand that girls are bailing. But we don't have a, they don't comprise a huge percentage of the audience anyway. And that's just the way the demographics of our shit here works. You know? Uh, When was the last time, in fact, that we had more than five women at the seminar? Oh, it's been a long time, isn't it? It's been a long time. We usually have two or three girls at the seminar, and then the rest of them are. Number of guys so and they're being uh,
3: dragged in by their significant others right yeah they didn't
0: want to be there but they showed up anyways. oh uh, we have every once in a while we'll have six maybe seven girls like once every three years we'll we'll do something like that but this is these topics that we deal with are typically you know male kind of things and that's not our fault i mean we don't it's not like we keep women from signing up is it have you ever had somebody try to sign up and you had to say, no, you're a girl? Breeze never turned a girl away from the from the seminar. It's just, you know, this kind of shit we do. It's just or in kind her of, private life, I'm sure. It's just kind of male. <laughs>
1: well,
0: I didn't want to get into that. but if you, uh, So here we are. I mean, this is kind of like a, a, a seminar kind of thing. You know, it's mainly guy stuff. And if girls don't like that, you know, we can I tell you what we'll do. We'll have a we'll have a a a podcast one time on the incredible lightness of being. Will that will that satisfy everybody? Or would you girls be happy with that if we did it?
3: Hey, there might be a couple of them that are really into B fifty twos.
4: Hey, there's female B fifty two crew members now. Mm-hmm.
0: There how about first seat pilots? There's some. There's a few. Mm-hmm. I mean, somebody's got to fly the damn things. That's it. Right? And if the Pentagon wants it to be girls, then girls fly the damn things. Well, let's talk about the damn things. You want to start with weapons or airplanes? Let's do airplanes first. All right. Since airplanes deliver weapons.
4: So what do you want to know?
0: Well, really, an airplane is a weapon, isn't it?
4: A military airplane, a combat airplane. Is, a a yeah.
0: combat airplane is actually...
4: Technically, the same thing as a rifle. We
0: call them weapon systems.
4: Right. Okay. So B-52 weapon system, B right. 16 weapon system.
0: So the B-52 weapon system is comprised of the airplane, the crew, and the ordnance? Yep. And that that all comprises the weapon system? I would say so.
4: Yep.
0: Right. So who is in charge of this system?
4: Uh, the job Title is crew commander, right. back in my day, or pilot, the guy in the left seat. On all airplanes except helicopters, the guy in the left seat is the senior pilot. Right. So in my day when we had crews were always stuck together, the job was called crew commander. You know, and you addressed each other on the interphone by, by what seat you're sitting in. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you put the navigator in the IP seat to give him some experience, when you talk to him, you call him co-pilot, even or IP, even though he's a navigator.
0: hmm so, hmm, okay. Yeah. Well, everybody knows who they're listening to and talking. Yeah. To. You're
4: talking to the seat ah. on, on interphone. You're talking the to the seat, seat is the job. Whoever's in it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, Cause on interphone, you gotta be careful. You communicate properly. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't do things. You don't say the word fire unless you mean it, you know, you right. don't discuss, hey, maybe we should bail out. Somebody's going to misconstrue that and pull and, the injection in. And bail the fuck out. Yeah. So, <laughs> no joking around. No, not certain words.
3: Uh, <laughs> Scott, has that happened before?
4: Uh, the one I know of was there was a gunner who uh, went to sleep on climb out. And on, on initial level off, the co-pilot was flying the airplane. And the pilot could see that he was going to overshoot the level off. He was going to climb through his assigned altitude. So he waited for him. And when the uh, when the co pilot indeed went through the altitude, the, the pilot in the left seat started yelling at him, Level out, level out, level out Well, they zero would the airplane, the gunner woke up with somebody screaming out on the interphone. Oh no. So he did. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> he, he did, he did. Yeah but it was you know i wonder how he
0: explained that later <laughs> oh yeah i mean I, i'm sorry i was asleep yeah how the
4: tail you, in a, you know, and you
3: 52 <laughs> fall asleep he probably he probably didn't that was a experience. tired <laughs> They putter, just man. probably booted him right out <laughs> yeah. i
4: really don't know what the aftermath was yeah. on that but, <laughs> I don't mind. but i always thought about what do you, how do you report back to the command post on this we have a change to our flight orders you know <laughs> <laughs> got, got a different list of people yeah. <laughs> Oh, took off with one more than we're going to land with? <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's not supposed to be the case. Oh, shit. So, uh, uh, the B-52, what an interesting aircraft. We talked about the B-52 last time, but this, this fascinating device was developed in the early 1950s. Yep. And, uh, I think the oldest airframe, or the newest airframe in the inventory right now was built in what, I think 68?
4: Was, I think it was 61. 61. Yeah, early 60s. No no later than 62.
0: Yeah. And we're still flying this this airplane 60 sure. years later. Sure,
4: because it still does stuff that no other airplane can do. Isn't that just amazing? Yeah, I mean, it's
0: just absolutely amazing. There's just, There are a few aircraft that that have been developed by... Uh, the, the air forces of the world and the aerospace companies of the world, and the B 52 and the C 47. KC 135. I mean, you just, you know, you can't do without those. KC 135. Things. KC 135. KC 135. A, it, you,
4: can't, you can't overstate the importance of the KC 135 and air refueling in general. Right. The U.S. Air Force is, uh, is almost universally air refuelable. Almost everybody does it. And during the Cold War, that gave us capabilities that other countries couldn't even think about. Nobody else had that kind of capability. They didn't have the massive capability that we had. You know, Virtually everybody's refuelable now. Right. The, the tankers are refuelable. Not the KC-135s, but the KC-10s are. And the new tankers, which I can't remember the designation. So the guys who pass fuel also receive fuel.
0: So if you're flying a KC-10, who can you refuel? Smaller aircraft, right?
4: Uh, or another KC-10.
0: Or another KC-10,
4: or a B-52, right. you can refuel almost anybody. The um, a ten can. Yes, the, the the real question is what kind of equipment does the receiver have? Mm-hmm. Okay, most planes now are being designed so that they refuel with a boom. So the boom operator in the back of the tanker flies the the hose into the receptacle in the receiver. Mm-hmm. Okay, but some airplanes, uh, helicopters, for instance, they use what's called probe and drogue. So on the on the on the receiving airplane, there's some sort of pipe that sticks way out, and then right. the tanker the tanker just deploys a um, his a, a loose hose with an umbrella-shaped thing on the end to stabilize it right. flying through the air. And then right. the receiver pot has to plug that stab in, that in. Yeah, right. yeah. If, if you're if you're boom refueling, when I was refueling B-52s, I'd just get myself into a position underneath the tanker. And the boom operator flies the, the fuel he into the... He stabs it into the plane. Right, right. right. I just but like position.
0: The, in the other configuration, it's the receiver The receiver's got to find that probe, that
4: drogue and stick that probe in there, yeah. Mm-hmm. So helicopters have to be that way, obviously, because you, right. you get that rotor. You know? So, yeah, we, we talked about air
0: refueling uh, last time, and it's a fascinating topic. Who thought that up? What lunatic thought that let's I, let's fill another airplane up all the way to the top well, with gas?
4: Some of these great pioneers it, after World War II came up with this idea. You know, the very first air refueling was done. Two planes just flew in vertical formation, and they dropped literally dropped a hose down to the other guy who put it into their normal ground refueling receptacle, and they pumped fuel. <laughs> It was a they proved the concept. These are both biplanes. I couldn't right. give you a year. Somewhere the, oh, this like, is a long This is nineteen twenty. Oh God. Yeah. yeah. Right. But of course it wasn't a routine thing at the time. They just right. proved the concept that it was possible. Right. It was it was again the Cold War that really provided the the impetus to get this really going and get everybody doing this. Mm-hmm. You know. Um I've seen I don't know if I'm sure if you look on the internet you can find them, but uh, at the the basic B fifty two school back when I went, they had a hallway that was dedicated to photographs of air refueling incidents. You know, stuff <laughs> stuff that went wrong. Okay. And some of that you just go it makes how you did,
0: not want to. Yeah.
4: Some of that you how does that even happen? You know? I remember seeing a picture of one that had a boom from a KC one thirty five stuck through the engine pod of a B fifty two, like an arrow shot through it. How do you miss the thing by that much? I mean, <laughs> There's know. a
0: there's a bump in the air.
4: Yeah, I get, but that would take I, a I don't big understand
0: break. how any of this is done. Anyway, I yeah. mean, you, you really is the to... air that calm at thirty eight thousand feet?
4: Generally, it is. Generally, it is. But you just have to. It doesn't matter. You just gotta play through it. You need the fuel. You know, you just gotta. So
0: if you have got IFR going on and right. you're you're flying through clouds and you are relying only on instruments and and there is turbulence and weather. It doesn't matter. You go. You have to refuel.
4: What might happen is you might get disconnected a few times because you just can't stay in position because of the turbulence. But, yeah, I, I refueled at night in the weather more times than I can count. Right. So you just, it's time to refuel, you do it. You know? Well,
0: I guess you've got no other option, do you?
4: Yeah. Well, we use in, on training sorties in the BBC. Well, a training really,
0: sorties, you can turn around and go home. But if you're right. not – if you're actually on a mission someplace, yeah. you I mean,
4: you got to get. Need the fuel to get the to mission deal. done. You do it. You know, right? What choice do you have? So, but it's That's it's it's indescribably, indescribably difficult, difficult to do. It's, I, it's the most difficult thing I've ever done. difficult
0: to whole life. to to, to I, I I I still have no idea what the hell you guys do to make that happen. I can imagine flying in a straight line. All right, and I can imagine everything. You know, you got gigantic. Surfaces in contact with a huge amount of air, flying through clear air, and everything's fairly stable, right? But how big a bump can that hooked-up apparatus actually tolerate?
4: Well, on a KC-135, we had to keep our refueling receptacle in a four-foot cube space, four feet on each side. If we got outside that, it would automatically disconnect us.
0: So it disconnects. And a valve closes, so it doesn't spray fuel all over it. Yeah,
4: there's a little bit of spray comes out of the tanker, but it's just it's just a
0: little right. mist. Right.
4: And you can see that if you look at videos of air refueling, when they disconnect, you'll see that little. But
0: that there's little, not eight or nine pounds of fuel sprayed no, all over no. it. So it's a pretty good little disconnect system.
4: Yeah, and, it, and now it's a really mature system. Oh, know. I'm sure. It is. Decades of, of of learning how to do all this, right. you know. And it's gotten pretty reliable. Although we did have one airplane during Desert Storm that he had a malfunction on the receiver and he couldn't get his fuel, so he had to abort the mission and divert to another place. It was a, a pre-strike right. refueling, and, and some I don't remember what the malfunction was in the receiver, but there was something wrong. With
0: something it. wrong yeah. with it. But it could happen. So if you leave, uh, you leave the base in in North Dakota, and you're on a mission that lasts 20 hours that's typical
4: right that's that's typical that's on the long side 12-hour training sorties were typical and now they're shorter they don't go on low-level routes anymore for instance and we used to spend up to four hours on low level so that's just been subtracted from the missions now i gather
0: really yeah they use different aircraft for that now
4: I, they yeah they, they going low level is really hard on the structure of a b52 and oh, I can imagine. they did it for decades you know and it got to where it's just not smart to do anymore it's too much fatigue you
0: know. because of the, oh, the yeah. buffeting it takes because when ground, you're low, the yeah. topography doing things when you're
4: work. low there's always turbulence always right and plus the way the controls work it, it makes the wings flex a lot you know they're designed to flex quite a bit Right. But all of that still induces fati- metal fatigue. Right. They're know? 60
0: years old. Right. Let's not flex them any more than we need to. How exactly. Yeah. Right. Uh, well, uh, so in a course of a of a 12-hour training, sortie, how many times are you going to fuel? Once. That'd be once.
4: Once. But you're going to be on that boom for mm-hmm. 45 minutes, an hour, maybe more. To
0: fill the airplane back up.
4: Yeah, and training sorters, we didn't fill up. We didn't need the fuel. We needed the practice.
0: Right. Oh, you just right. topping off. Yeah, we, we just take for run it through the procedure. Yeah, we
4: would take maybe ten thousand pounds. Most to us was nothing.
0: So if, but if you're going, say from Minot, North Dakota, over the top of the Arctic, and down the eastern coast of Asia to the Philippines, and you're gonna, you're gonna. Destroy Manila, right? And then you're going to fly back to Minot, North Dakota. How many times do you fuel in that kind of an insane? But that's that's a typical deal, right?
4: Yeah. I mean, that, yeah, that's a typical contingency type yeah. thought. Yeah. Right. Um, well, again, it, there, it, there's a lot of variation depending on uh, are you going to go low level, how how high are you going to be, right? What's the payload you got? But I would say typically you'd probably need three or four tankers from
0: that so you'd hook up three or four times yeah
4: during desert storm for an go, hour at a time yeah as long as it takes to get the fuel and that might be an hour yeah mm. um because uh, we could not take if the tanker turned on all his pumps it was more pressure than our manifold could take so there, mm-hmm. was, there had to be a little patience in there you know
0: right and run it at 65 yeah. percent or something well,
4: i'll give you an example during desert storm again my unit was deployed to raf fairford in central england And every day, we flew combat sorties all the way to Iraq and back to England. Mm -hmm. So the short ones were 17 hours long. And they required one tanker prior to the target and two tankers to get back. this is B-52s versus KC-135 tankers. Right. So I'm trying to remember. Tanker could offload to us. uh, He had a max gross weight of about 275,000, of which probably... uh, Two hundred thousand was fuel he could pass. I'm really stretching my memory here, mm-hmm. so you know it, it might take you might take on a total load of four or five hundred thousand pounds in the in the route. I think the thing burns massive amounts of fuel. Yeah, we had a canned figure that it took us four thousand pounds to start the engines and get to the runway.
0: Just to move the <laughs> aircraft grab, yeah. into position to take off. Yeah,
4: you put eight of those old technology engines start running fuel through them. They're gonna they're gonna eat a lot of fuel,
0: and they burn. Yeah, their, that's. Yeah. I, I think we talked last last time about the design of the B fifty two. The whole damn thing is a tank. Oh yeah, the the entire internal volume of the of the wing is. Full of liquid fuel.
4: Right. And the top of the fuselage spine is all liquid it is fuel. It's all
0: liquid fuel. Everywhere in the fuselage that's not bombs yeah. is, is fuel.
4: Bombers, since, since they were invented in World War I, have been fuel trucks. Because range right. and payload is what you need. Right. So they're all fuel trucks. Right. You know, three quarters, of see, we, we had a max gross weight piece on 488,000 pounds, of which I think about 315,000 could be fuel. So what, that's seventy five percent of your weight? Something like that?
0: Seventy five percent of the weight of the payload or the weight of the total gross weight the of gross the airplane. weight of the airplane. Yeah. Is seventy five percent of the rough give or, it, or take, you know. Yeah. Could be that, that might much. be added to that might be replenished three times. Maybe during yeah. the course of the That's a. But,
4: but that's what gave it its its fantastic legs. Yeah. You know. We used to fly these in the Cold War days, we would fly these over open ocean Hunt down the Soviet ship missions,
1: mm-hmm.
4: and those might be twenty-hour missions, might require three tankers, but most of it was at high altitude, so more, more fuel efficient at high altitude,
0: forty thousand feet,
4: and uh, usually not that high, thirty to thirty-five,
0: right, something like that, about airliner <laughs> cruising. Yeah, the altitude. airliners
4: like that, thirty-five to forty, right, for fuel efficiency, but of course, out over the open ocean, we're not on a flight plan or anything. We're not in bombers. Right. You just we'd either file a false flight plan or we wouldn't file anyone at all, because the the flight plan systems are open computers. The, yeah, the you didn't want anybody. To.
1: <laughs>
0: Steph was showing me last night a website. Uh, apparently, there are two or three websites right now. Have you seen these things, where all the airplanes in the air at any given time? Oh yeah, appear oh, yeah. H- on the on the
4: <clears throat> uh, on the screen. ADSBExchange.com. Yeah, it's a fascinating yeah. website. I've spent hours looking at that.
0: ADSBExchange.com.
4: Yeah, and you can click on on any of the targets, and it'll give you all the information it has How About on the airplane. And, yeah, you know, that's,
0: that's what she showed me last You can night.
4: isolate just military planes. You know, Yeah. Some of yeah. which won't tell you what kind of plane they are
0: because they're— X, X, X. Yeah, because right. it's up. not
4: public information. Right. You know? though so, yeah that's a, I've spent hours on that website so yeah
0: that's that's pretty cool again I didn't know of its existence till she showed me last night
4: yeah that's a that's a great website.
0: she also show, told me last night that her grandfather was a flew b-17s in World War two now those guys that's a whole different uh, I can approach to to Killing people and breaking things. This I, is,
4: I can't imagine it, that job. I you know
0: It's the, the the air the aircraft itself has not got a pressurized cockpit. No. So at ten thousand feet or twelve thousand feet, what was the actual service ceiling of that silly thing? Fourteen, fifteen thousand feet? Well, I
4: think a little higher, maybe twenty. I don't know. But how
0: do you function at twenty thousand feet the, for any length of time?
4: The the crew, particularly the waist gunners, had electric suits to wear. Were like electric because it's eighty for,
0: million degrees yeah. below zero up there, you know, yeah. and it's it's uh, you know, and there's not any air. Right. I'm, I'm, I I can see how the well they, they covered them up in sheepskin and stuff, oh, and yeah. They, yeah. they kept them uh, kind of warm with clothes. But after a while, uh, the absence of enough air to breathe.
4: Well, they had to just, something on oxygen. oxygen. How did masks. they do that back then? Kind of like they do now. They had, they had, they had oxygen tanks, and, and it was plumbing running right through the airplane. And right. You could plug your oxygen mask into a port kind of. So
0: you actually had access to, to O2. To... Oh, you have to, yeah,
4: yeah. Above, above 13,000, 14,000 feet, you need supplemental oxygen. And, yeah. Uh, so for most planes, they'll provide it above 10,000 for some safety margin.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's all
4: It's all about your time of useful consciousness, they call it.
0: Yeah, 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 I've heard that concept. But uh, those guys, hell, those B-17 crews, they, I mean, if you, what was the average lifespan of those guys was like eight
3: eight missions? Less than 50% was your life expectancy for every single mission. Yeah.
4: That's why the- the,
3: I,
0: uh, I mean, the longest living guy flew like, what, 15 missions or something like that?
4: Well, it got better. But (laughs) The reason the Memphis Bell is so famous is because it it took like a year or a year and a half for one B-17 crew to fly 25 missions and no fatalities. That's why that plane was so famous. And at that time, that was your quota. If you flew 25 missions and were alive, you could go home. And that was, the odds were against you.
0: Right, (laughs) right. Mm -hmm. I
4: can't imagine that. I can't imagine the morale problems they had in those squadrons. Can you
0: imagine loading up on your, your eighth or ninth mission in a B 17 and thinking to yourself, you know, everybody I know is dead. Yeah. And everybody the, the average... I've ever known, every, all the guys I trained with have been shot down. And here's my ass, you know.
3: And the average age was getting uh, on this airplane less than 25. So less than twenty. Yeah, all of, those, all of those pilots were kids.
4: Yeah. I can't imagine being a B-17 pilot because your combat mission is you're going to take off, you're going to be in the middle of a cloud of maybe hundreds of airplanes. And your only job is to not have a mid-air collision with the other airplanes. You can't look out the window and worry about the fighters or the aircraft firing. You just got to not have a mid-air collision.
0: With one of your own For hours
4: on air. Yeah, right. And, and this is going to be five, six-hour combat mission, and you've got anti-aircraft fire and fighters trying to kill and, you. And you and,
0: the, and really the least of your concerns is dropping the bombs yeah, on the target. The, the, I the mean. pilot had
4: no concern with that at all. That was the navigators did that. And the pilot's job was to not have a mid-air collision. That was his job. I <laughs> oh, just I can't imagine it. It's beyond my scope. The bomber job I did was so different. We we're almost right. always single ship. You know, it was just right. just me and my five guys. And there's no other airplane for me to worry about. Right. You know, so I just can't imagine it. It's a complete, bombing is a completely different job than it was in 1944.
0: When those guys would send B 17s, like you're going to go make another run over deep seek, how many are in the squad?
4: Well, it all depends on what was available, you know, and what the target but was. And,
0: five or six or 15 well, or no? 20? A
4: squadron would be uh, 20, 25, something like that. So you would, you would launch wings, okay?
1: Right.
4: Wings have multiple squadrons. So a lot of the race, especially as the war went on, they launched multiple wings. There might be 500 B-17s attacking that target today. And this was necessary <laughs> because, by the way, despite its name of 100 airplanes. Uh, and despite its... its air altogether. Yeah. And, just- but what, the reason why is because despite the name of Precision Daylight Bombing, they estimated that maybe 10 or 12 percent of the bombs would hit in the target box. So you had to send a lot of airplanes to make sure enough bombs got in the target box.
0: They actually fucked the thing up that yeah. was to be destroyed that day.
4: Yeah. Well,
0: that is that is interesting. We were talking the other night about, about the precision of bombing now. And you told me that uh, you guys operated from 40,000 feet and you could put... Seven hundred fifty pound bombs on top of a target, a relatively small target from that altitude, and that it was normal for you to be able to not miss with any one of the bombs.
4: Yep. It was common.
0: Now that's a that's a whole different thing it it wasn't what what changed from nineteen forty four.
4: Technology. Hell, it changed. My first B fifty two sortie was in nineteen seventy six, and we could bomb like that then. Right? Could not. No, no.
0: What were you doing then?
4: If you dropped a single simulated nuke uh, from forty thousand feet, you were thrilled if it hit within four or five thousand feet of the target, and and right. for nukes that might be okay depending on the nuke and the target. Mm, right. You know? But yeah, uh, by the close, time it does
0: close is is okay with nukes and hand hand grenades grenades and shit fights (laughs) right 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 but but i mean a four or five thousand foot radius of effectiveness still gives you the ability to 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 be effective against that target right right?
4: it should be
1: yeah
0: right and that got better
4: technology computers changed everything man you know digital stuff when, I, when the, the computer we were using the bomb with in 1976 was an analog thing full of vacuum tubes and relays. You could actually stand inside that computer. And, good the, and, and, and the good navigator teams were the ones that could get it to work. They,
0: <laughs> they would, I'm not exaggerating. They, they would, could get the equipment to operate.
4: Uh, the radar navigator, who you would call bombardier, right. would board the plane with a great big suitcase full of vacuum tubes and relays and stuff.
0: In case he needed it.
4: Yeah. And it was very common to spend your high altitude cruise time after the tanker, before the low level. To, the radar navigator standing inside the computer, and the navigators trying to, you know, and they're talking on the interphone. You know, sh- shake that one, kick that one, replace that one. You know, trying to get stuff to work. It was really common those days. Solid state and transistors and digital changed all of that. You know, right. everything became plug in a new one, and it works. Right, you know, take it out and we'll give it to maintenance when we get back. They'll put it on a bench and figure it out. But we got a replacement. We will plug it in, you know. Right. Uh, uh, plus the accuracy, just all this computing power. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, you remember, nineteen seventy six, there wasn't a desktop computer.
0: No, they it, didn't, it didn't exist, exist yet for know? another what eight or nine years. Yeah, there was
4: there was programmable calculators. That's the best you could get. You right. Know? Um, and so the digital revolution just changed all this stuff. So much computing power now. You know. Mm-hmm. When I graduated from college in 1974, the University of Minnesota had a computer, and it filled a three-story building. You know? <laughs> and it was one one-thousandth as powerful as your cell phone.
0: Right. So think of that. Right. Think of oh, that revolution as I the computer room at uh, a little college I went to here in town. Uh, it, was, it filled up a large room, and it was punch cards. Oh, yeah. It was the interface. Punch cards was the interface. And they held, held class on that old equipment. Oh yeah. And every year the class that you had taken last year was irrelevant. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's changed. Right. Yeah. But I suppose that at at so at 40,000 feet the things that are going to enable you to drop a bomb out of an aircraft and hit a target on the ground while you are flying at 500 miles an hour are going to be if you can get that data into the computer, you get the, the temperature and the wind speed and all of, the, all of the weather between the bomb bay and the ground, and the airspeed and the precise location of the target, that could all be calculated and you can let the computer drop the bomb and the damn thing goes where it's supposed right. to. That's and, so that's the that's the object, right?
4: Yeah, and remember we so far we talked about unguided weapons. Right. Gravity is the only force pulling that bomb down. Right. A larger and larger percentage of everything the US does and much of the west is is guided weapons. So there's a computer on the weapon that's changing its path, you know. And, right. Um, th- those guns spectacularly in to, accurate.
0: You know. In response to changing conditions or in response to changes in the uh, destination of the weapon?
4: Yeah, changes in the target, that's pretty new, and there's not still not, as far as what I know, that's out there in the general public, that's still not a fully developed thing. But there are weapons. I just read something on the internet about how there's weapons in the testing stage that the idea is the bomber's going to drop the weapon, and it's going to find the target.
0: It's going to decide what it's yeah, going to. It changes so priorities. So it'll have orders coming from somebody besides the airplane it dropped. Right.
4: It. It's pre-programmed with priorities. So right. I w- when I dropped it, I wanted it to hit target A. As it fell, it decided that target B is a higher priority, and so it changed its course. That's pretty new technology. Right. You know? But guiding them to the, the targets you had when you released the weapon, that's been around since uh, Vietnam. Laser guided bombs were first used in Vietnam, right? So they would they would just ride the laser beam down, you know.
0: Well, that's kind of what the forward controller does, right?
4: That's E can, you know. That that's, that's another one of those that really gets into what your specifics you're talking about. But yeah, there's a um, uh, forward air controllers are the CCI used most of them. Uh, yeah, they most army units have one associated with them, and it's no. usually it's an air force guy, usually those, a fighter pilot.
0: Those guys are not really talked about very much. Yeah, the CCI, the combat control. Oh, combat control
4: team. Yeah, they're pretty hush
0: hush. that's just, that's not discussed very much, and those are the craziest bastards in the world.
4: Those are snake eaters. Those guys, but they're well respected. Okay. I'd
0: have to say that they are yeah. that because that job is you have to be. Absolutely crazy, because one hundred percent of that jobs taking takes place behind enemy lines.
4: Yep, that's their function. And uh, you know, I you don't know. know the details, and nobody told me, but I guarantee. You, me,
0: uh, essentially, they're going and painting an X on the door,
4: yep.
0: and saying kill these guys. But they got to go physically paint the X on the door, yeah.
4: or at least get a laser on them. You know, but yeah, no, nobody right. told me, so I'm not divulging anything here. But I promise you that before we launched our first air raid during uh, Desert Storm, that those guys had been on the ground for a long time.
0: Now, by a long time, you mean a couple of days? or Days to weeks. Days to weeks. Yeah. They'd been crawling around on the ground, finding targets.
4: Gathering intel, reporting the weather, you know. um, uh,
0: This is behind enemy lines where the bombs were going to drop.
4: Yep. They go – when you get uh, selected to do this out of boot camp, you're almost two years away from getting qualified. They go to school after school after school. It's just – God, almighty. Because they're qualified. They're meteorologists. They're radio operators. They're radar controllers. They're, they're, they're infantrymen. You
0: know? They're in charge of a whole bunch of information. Yeah, yeah. They've they, been prepared very, very thoroughly.
4: And they can all do one or two other guys' jobs in case somebody's a casualty. Right. You know? And – they're smart, they're, absolutely. They're,
0: they're highly intelligent, yep. and they don't worry about things that you and I worry about. Yeah. Yeah. Like getting bit by bugs. Yeah. Just not a factor.
4: No, you have to right. lay there and be quiet. You know? Lay
0: there and be quiet. Doesn't matter what's happening to you. you lay yep. there and be quiet.
4: Survival might depend on it. You right. know? So so a, more so importantly
0: a, than that, the mission.
4: Right. Still. So there's a bee sting in your forehead. You have to just sit there. Yeah, not for me thanks
0: (laughs) yeah it's a different type of human being that wants to do that i've met a couple of those guys over the past 20 years Mm -hmm. and uh you have to have a lot of respect for that kind of that kind of focus
4: yeah you talk about physical fitness you know oh well that's
0: not even it's beyond that it's not a job i'd want to do no Uh that doesn't sound like it's not a job that not everybody no, and if you volunteer do. for it, it's you not know. to get patted on the back
4: because nobody's ever going to know nobody's you Nobody's going to know anything
0: yeah. about what you do. Yeah. No. Yeah. I had never heard of this before I met yeah. these guys.
4: I, I was stationed, uh, <coughs> stationed near one of those combat control teams because they have some permanent locations around the globe that they, they'll deploy out of there, you know. Right. And in, in usually in parts, you know, so they might have 40 guys there, but only 10-man teams might deploy something. Mm-hmm. The year I was near those guys um, – do, they did halo jumps for training, high-altitude, low-opening. Low, right. And they'll jump out of a plane at an altitude that requires oxygen, so they're way up there. Yeah. And then they just then, fall. And the
0: point of that is they want, they want to drop out of the airplane, and somebody on the ground might be able to see the aircraft, but they would not ever associate that aircraft with somebody jumping out of the right. damn thing, and then they drop down and open it. Eight hundred feet.
4: The last second. Yeah,
0: the last they're, second. Got an altimeter feet. on their wrist
4: or Some, something, and you know. they're
0: on the ground. No, that was uh, i read about that uh, about the halo thing, and it might have been in that book about uh, Area Fifty One.
4: Yeah, I've not read this.
0: I don't know. That 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 is a. Fascinating book. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember the girl's name that wrote it. I can't think of it either. She's written several books about this kind of shit. She gets a, a, an annoying number of things wrong that you can kind of recognize if you know anything at all about this. But. Is it Annie Jacobson? Annie Jacobson. You look her up. well. Look, her, she's but that like that the the whole book about Area Fifty One is a fascinating. But she put some stuff about aliens in there to sell the book. But Area Fifty One was where they developed aircraft.
4: Right. The only thing I know about is that's where they trained in the F one seventeen when it was secret.
0: It, PS twenty two, I think they called it. But it was, but but Area Fifty One, that whole complex out there. Uh. Was where they developed the U two, and the ox cart, and the SR seventy one. That was what the facility was for, and all this other shit was just.
4: You yeah, know. They, they did an amazingly good job of keeping that stuff classified. Yeah, yeah. they really did. Yeah. It's uh,
0: what? What's the ox cart? Why? The CIA's version of the SR seventy-one, well, the YF twelve, YF twelve, yeah. yes, yeah. The YF twelve, that was a. Now you talk about cool airplanes. Let's go back to airplanes for a while. <laughs> Everybody's favorite airplane in the whole world is the SR seventy-one. Did you ever know anybody? Oh yeah, I had a boss that, 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 that flew that airplane. Yeah,
4: I had an 06, a full colonel boss that, that flew the SR seventy-one. And, of course, in those days, it was still flying. So he couldn't talk a lot about it. Right. Um, he did tell me that, uh, um, that at the time, I think the Air Force would admit that its speed was in excess of Mach 2. I think that was the official release data. And I asked him about it, and he said, way in excess. <laughs> <laughs> way yeah. in yeah. excess but of Mach yeah. 2. So they, yeah. I don't know that they ever truly declassified all the performance figures for that thing. It was amazing. The guys got astronaut wings when they qualified in, because wow. of the altitudes they flew at, and they they flew in an astronaut suit the whole time. Because they and he did tell me that when you got above a certain altitude, you weren't really flying an airplane anymore. And he said the, the first versions of it's it It's
0: not aerodynamic. It you know, the there's not enough the air. Yeah. Right.
4: And he said the first the early versions of it were really complicated to fly. And a lot of you spent a lot of time, you know, opening nozzles and. Closing knobs and because you're not really flying an airplane. Right. And then they put out – when computers got better, they changed it to where it flies like an airplane, and so computer does all that stuff, and you still have a stick and rudder and throttles, mm-hmm. you know. And he says it became much easier to fly then. Well, did you see
0: – well, we lost Chuck Yeager. Yes. A few weeks ago, we lost Chuck Yeager. It's just – what a guy. Oh yeah. yeah. You know, and and there was that video that that big long interview he did. And uh I I know, Rusty, I know you saw that video, didn't you? With, I'm
3: not sure if I saw with, it. I thought you did. God.
0: Where Chuck is just matter of fact talking about you know, we got the thing up to eighty five thousand feet and uh and I can't remember what he's actually flying. It, it this, this might have been the X-1. Could be. And he said he got it on up to 85,000 feet, and they wanted to see what the airplane would do, so I took it on up to 125,000 feet. And just real matter of fact, he's saying he took the thing on up to 125,000 feet, and then, you know, he pancakes the thing, and it starts a, a flat I, I spin upside down.
3: I did watch this in your office, yeah. But
0: just... As a just matter of fact, he says, we took it on up to 125,000 feet. The opera, the, the disclosed ceiling of that airplane was 50,000 feet. And he's, and he, he's talking about Mach 4.2. Yeah. Well, there, there's, and this is, it, this is way before the
4: SR 71. That's.
0: Yeah, yeah, way faster. Yeah. Who knows what there's There's an there. often told story <laughs> in
4: the Air Force about a SR-71. Their, their call sign was always Blackbird. Right. And there's a story, and I'm sure there's... You're, an, you're a, talking three.
0: about the story where they're out on in the western United States and they wanted a, a speed reading. No, that's, a good, that's <laughs> a good one, too. That's a good one.
4: But no, this one is, It uh, goes something like this. He calls up, he's coming back into the United States. So he calls up an air route traffic control center. And he requests flight level six zero zero, which is essentially sixty thousand. Sixty thousand. Right? And the controller comes back and says, uh, <coughs> copy, if you can get up there, you can have it. And he says, uh, Blackbird one two will descend and maintain flight level six zero zero. Smart ass. <laughs>
0: we'll descend and maintain. But that I think the there is a I think there's like an audio recording of the exchange between the SR-71 crew and the tower. Uh,
4: is this the ground speed check one? This is the ground speed. Yeah, I've check. heard something that alleges to be there. Yeah.
0: The, the ground speed check, and you had so you had a like a 172, you know, requesting a ground speed check from the tower, I and mean, it's 215 miles an hour or something. like that. And these smart asses flying a
4: F-18 or something. F-18.
0: That Come back and say, uh, tower question ground speed check. And the guy comes back and says six hundred and seventy five miles an hour knots, or whatever the hell it was. Probably not. <laughs> and uh and these guys in the SR seventy one are listening in on this thing. <laughs> <laughs> the tower uh and the guy goes back. Twenty seven hundred and 50 miles. <laughs> Just to embarrass the guys that were fucking with the guy flying the 172. That was a pretty funny story.
3: And I'm that's sure on, yeah, that's, sure that's on it. the internet. Uh,
4: I'm sure there's truth in it. And most of yeah. those kind of stories, there's at least some grain of truth in yeah. it someplace.
3: Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, the the guy who was flying the SR71 is the one that told the story. He said it was some um, it was some conference he was talking at. Uh, yeah.
4: yeah, yeah, I think I listened to at least some of that yeah. that tape. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah.
0: Well, we'd we'd also talked about a couple other bombers that I – bombers are cool. I agree. Bombers are cool. Fast bombers are the coolest airplanes in the world, like the the B-59. B-58? B-58, I'm sorry, the Hustler. The Hustler, yeah. That thing was a Delta Wing supersonic bomber. Mach 2, yep. right? When, when his Hit operation
4: late. was the fastest airplane in the world.
0: Did you know anybody that flew I there? did. I
4: had another boss that flew those. yeah.
0: What did he say about that?
4: He said it was not a pilot's airplane, that if you took off with a full load of fuel, and they, they used to carry a single weapon and fuel in a big pod underneath the belly. He so says, if you took off with that, it took you many miles to get to a safe flying airspeed. Because it took forever. It had just enough thrust to, to accelerate you know, like one knot per mile or something. Just really, and he said it was scary. Now, once you got the thing up to speed, then it was a much better behaved airplane. It, but he also, you're said, talking
0: about it just didn't behave correctly it, it, under the hand while you were accelerating because to,
4: it didn't have enough thrust to go fast. You know, uh, yet, it, you had to. It's hard to explain this. You have to get going f- to a certain any airplane, pipe right. Cherokee. It, if it gets too slow, it's sloppy on the controls, right. Well, the B fifty eight had just enough thrust to eventually get to these high speeds. Right, if you had a full payload in that big pot
0: underneath it. Yeah, I had a car that behaved that way one time. Yeah, goddamn thing didn't wake up till it was four thousand RPM. Yeah, and, you know, eighteen hundred RPM is like a Volkswagen. Yeah, and then you got it up to four thousand, and suddenly. You why? Hell, this thing is in fact, fake. Right. So then, it was similar to this. Also, kind was of like
4: a... that on initial takeoff with that big pod and everything. Right. So it's much better if you didn't have that pod. Um, so also, the thing
0: was designed to drop a nuclear weapon. Single weapon. Yeah. A single nuclear weapon.
4: Yep. Did not have a big internal bomb. I don't think it had any internal bomb there. I think they carried that pod.
0: That's really? A, I think that's right. I'll no conventional
4: wrong. bombs on this. On this. On this. Not that I know. Well, well, that's interesting. Because it was designed to dash in. The speed was its protection from from uh, ground fire. It was just going right. so fast nobody could track it. That was the concept.
0: You get the thing up to Mach 2, go over there, drop the bomb, turn around, take whatever, how many thousand miles it takes to turn around and come home. Right. If you can get back.
4: Yep. He also told me that on the bomb run, at bomb run speeds with all four engines at full afterburner, if one of the outboard engines quit, the plane would come apart. So it just wasn't stressed for any kind of side load like wow. that. So he said it was the only airplane he ever flew that when he was scheduled to fly and they came, came to him and said, you're canceled, the plane's broke, he was kind of relieved.
1: Well, <laughs> I'll He
0: didn't, well, really, I'll tell you, I'll give you didn't really want to die. That uh, I'll,
4: I'll give you the, the actual figures. One out of four that were ever built was destroyed in an accident. That's got to be wow. the worst safety record of any combat airplane ever. One out of four. so he only served for about ten years, and the Air Force said it's just what replaced it. Uh, the B fifty two came along, and B fifty two was already there, but it. Uh, they so just
0: decided that the fifty eight wasn't the mission wasn't necessary. the
4: performance just wasn't worth the losses they were taking right. and the expense. It was an airplane way ahead of its time,
0: you know. So this is an airplane that probably would have worked perfectly well with computers. Yeah. That we've got now,
4: right, and and b- engines with more thrust stuff, right. You know, remember, just jet engines were really thrust limited until the seventies. You know that's why the right. B, b fifty two needed eight of them, because jet engines just didn't put out a lot of power. You know? Right, um, so they had to put eight on a B fifty two. Now, when they put fan jets on the H model B fifty two, which is the only one left, I got I've got seven eight hundred hours in H models. Uh, and you could do almost anything but initial takeoff on two engines, as long as it was symmetrical really? engines. They were that far yeah.
0: ahead? Yeah, I mean, of you didn't
4: routinely do it. The this, previous
0: turbojets?
4: Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and now, again, you didn't routinely do this. And, right. and the key was symmetrical power. Right? Initial takeoff at, at full gross weight, you could usually handle a tailwind even at full gross weight with two engines out, depending on the temperature. Right. Because that's something we'd figure out on alert. The duty copilot would take today's weather, and he would come up with a, a, a an eight, seven, six engine takeoff performance data. And he, what you what you do is calculate the maximum tailwind you could take. Because one of the problems in the sitting on nuclear alert is your there's one primary runway. Right. right? If you got to use the other one, your launch is going to be much slower because you, gotta you, you got to back taxi two miles down that runway. You know? Right. Uh, and so you had to know how much tailwind you could take on the primary runway. Right. And my memory is, that stuff in those H models at full wartime weight, it, it was frequent we could take 10 and 15, maybe 20 knots of tailwind, even with a couple of engines out. So it's, that it's, is amazing. It's the only, biom- only B-52 that was overpowered is the H model, the current one. And they're about to get and in so series- how
0: many engines are on the H? Eight. Six or eight? eight. Still eight because yeah. there's eight points.
4: And they're getting real serious talking about re-engineering the buff now, and the GE I think and Rolls Royce are a big competition to sell them engines. But I think they're going to put eight engines on it again. So it's going to be even more. Why over not? Yeah. You know, and I think that I think and I'm I'm speculating, but I think when they went to the drawing board to go how do we redesign it for four, it was just too much engineering. You know, just right. let's just put eight on it. The plane was designed for eight. Let's put eight
3: on it. How much more are you, uh, fuel efficient are these new engines?
4: All oh, new ones, uh, compared to the ones that I flew in G models, they're probably 40%, 50% more fuel. I mean, it's night and day. The FanJet H models are 15 to 20% more fuel efficient than the previous ones. But that was a first-generation FanJet engine. They, right. they basically just took the J57 engine that was already there, and the first two or three compressor stages, they extended the blades out to make them. Fans.
0: And made a fan jet out Yeah, yeah. So what... So it's just a minor redesign, but it was enough difference that it worked in a different manner.
4: Yeah, the outer part of those blades is now act as propellers too. And so you get kind of the the benefits of propellers, which is fast response.
0: So you get some thrust from the rotating assembly. Right. And not just thrust from the burning
4: fuel. Exactly. So the performance actually falls off with altitude more than the... The G model right. did. Right, I guess it was. Because would. propellers fall off in performance at altitude. Right. Because they can accelerate the air a certain amount, and that's it. You know? Right. So as you get higher and higher, it can accelerate less and less. Right. But but the H model was way more fuel efficient than the, the G model uh, and didn't require water injection to boost takeoff thrust, So which right. is another complicated thing that could malfunction and weight yeah you think every fueling is crazy my uh, water injected takeoffs in a b-52 were were i'd say scary but they weren't quite scary they were concerning and we right. almost <laughs> always if the temperature was above 40 degrees fahrenheit basically you had to use water injection and once you initiated that water all you could do is steer the airplane you couldn't adjust the thrust anymore because if you pulled the power back the water would flame the engine out so I know of a guy who was killed when he flamed out eight of them that way on initial takeoff. All eight engines flamed. He was taken off on what we used to call minimum interval takeoff behind another B 52. And when you'd be on the runway simultaneously, and you the, the plan was to stretch the interval to 12 seconds by the time the first guy took off. But you'd start with zero seconds, and you'd, you'd let the guy ahead of you go 12 seconds, and then you'd apply takeoff power. And the guy behind you would wait 12 seconds, and he'd apply takeoff power. Okay? So you'd end up that fear. was the
0: max density you could lift off it it one right after the
4: idea being to escape the incoming submarine launched ballistic missiles you know right so it was considered worth the risk but it was right. it was risky I mean uh, I never did those vol- I, we had to keep currency in them you know you had to do one every six months or something uh, I never volunteered to do more than I had to in those things because right. they're just they're just frightening uh, and you get airborne into the worst wake turbines because you're blowing behind a Great, big, heavy guy. Sure. You know, and the yoke would start going stop to stop just to try to keep the wingtips out of the telephone poles, you know. And it was just, <laughs> when I look back on it, the safety people would never let you do this anymore. But right. But it was the only way to get a, a maximum weight B-52G model in the air, or earlier model. Mm-hmm. So um, this guy, he he was taken off in a G model behind an H model, which had the Phantas. And... At low altitude, until the water ran out, that G would actually outperform that H. And so he evidently looked up and had a windscreen full of B-52 in front of him and reacted like any pilot in the world would. He reduced the power. Sadly. And th-
0: reduced the power. And that flamed out all eight the fuel, animals. but not the water.
4: Right. The water just went. It was on or off. That's it. And so it was still on. So when he pulled the power back, flamed out eight of them. This is in, in, near Sacramento, California.
3: Was there anything you could have done to to s- salvage that?
4: The only thing you could have done is try to steer out of the way. But every part of the world is going to react by reducing the thrust. It's just it's built India,
3: you know.
0: Right.
4: So, I can't remember how many guys. So that system
0: just or... worked counter to all your intuition as a pilot, basically.
4: Yeah, the first time I did one, I was a young copilot, and I was, I was scared to death. I just... I was used to 6,000-foot takeoff rolls, no matter what the weight is in an H model. And then my unit re-equipped a G model, so all the pilots had to get checked out. And the checkout program is you you would watch one from the IP seat, and then the next time you flew, you would sit in your seat and do it. And I'll never forget (laughs) sitting in that IP seat and watching a 65-second takeoff roll. My eyes are getting bigger and bigger, you know, and the, the runway remaining markers are going by and going by and going by. And I'm like. And you're still on the ground. <laughs> <and> can <laughs>
1: <can't>
0: we
4: get. <laughs> blowing on the windshield. <laughs> you know, it was frightening. Little did I know that was going to become another day at the office, you know, because I never yeah. flew an H model again after that. So it, oh. it's amazing how what you can get used to. You know, air refueling, something you get used It's just a job. You just do it. When I look back at it, I go, that's the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life. And really frightening to have two big airplanes so close together. You know, the first time you see it,
0: The whole damn concept is just so crazy to those of us that sit here on the ground.
4: But there's YouTube videos taken from the bomber cockpit of refueling and it doesn't do it justice. It doesn't uh, really show you how difficult that is. And it's a skill that, you just had to – I can count on two fingers the times I took off in a B-52 and did not plug into a tanker. And nine out of ten of those, I didn't need the fuel. I needed the, the, the experience. The practice of yeah.
0: plugging it. B-47. Uh, another, another cool Boeing product. <laughs> what a neat airplane that was. They uh, – was that a British design?
4: No, no, that's a Boeing
0: that's – a, That's a Boeing a Boeing aircraft. product, and yeah. the And the, the wing cord on that thing was – this is kind of the opposite of a Delta wing.
4: Yep. It's highly swept, but it's fairly thin for an airplane its size. Right. You know? um, and it was, it was always, from the time it was on the drawing board, it was considered an interim airplane to get us to the B-52. Right. Um, it had uh, tandem seating for the pilots, and the navigator sat kind of below them you know, on mm-hmm. a lower deck. Uh, it had a tail gun that was remotely controlled by the co-pilot. Right? Right. Radar aimed and remotely controlled by the co-pilot. Six engines. It was partially acrobatic. The, the pilot's airplane. The pilots love flying airplane. It was like a, like a big and slightly slower-to-maneuver fighter, you know. Right. Um, again, I had a boss, and it might be the same guy that flew B-58s. I can't remember now that flew B-47s. Because there were so many of them that, if you're my age, all the senior staff, when you got into B-52s, had all flown B-47s, B-47s and, you know, some B-58s. They'd all flown those 24-hour airborne alerts with nukes on the airplane. Stopped doing that in the '60s, so I never did that. But, right. but you, the senior officers all had done that kind of stuff, you know. Um, and they, have, they, they were universe. They loved the airplane. It was really sweet flying airplane. Right. Um, the Air Force eventually asked a little too much out of it. Um, they started. To, they wanted to do toss bombing with it. And toss bombing is a deal where you put positive G's on the airplane, and at just the right place, you release the weapon, and that yeah. allows it. It actually tosses the bomb, and you turn away. Right? Right. So you can toss. So there's
0: it. a trajectory, right? Not just a a drop, but you're <clears throat> right. creating a trajectory for the wing. right. And so
4: you're throwing the bomb over terrain or defenses or something like that. Um, so my, the story I got was Boeing said, "Don't do that with the B-47." And SAC said, "Yeah, we'll go ahead."
0: Right. So
4: <laughs>
0: now we're gonna after
4: after a couple of years of this, they had I don't know how many, but way too frequent examples of the wings coming off the airplane. On initial takeoff, It's too much. Yeah, metal fatigue, yeah. and not doing the toss bombing, but on initial takeoff when your distress is at its so the, most.
0: So the stress yeah. Yeah. was being applied during the during the toss bombing, right? And the guys were paying for it on takeoff,
4: right? So one of the big B forty seven squadrons is at McDill Air Force Base on the on the Gulf Coast of Florida, just outside of Tampa. And after one or two of those went in there, the the unofficial slogan became "One a day in Tampa Bay." Because <laughs> pilots, well, pilots, pilots have good... Pilots are
0: cynical bastards, <laughs> aren't they? Well,
4: they got good gallows humor, <laughs> <Yeah>. you know? <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> one a day if they have a bike.
4: Yeah. So I don't know how many they lost, but m- more than one, right. you know. And Boeing kind of said, we told you, you know, don't do that. Because it just really wasn't designed for that. Design is an like extreme high-altitude bomber. Right. But there's also a, a trick to the pilots teams had to be matched up very carefully because in order to get landings, the Copa had to fly the whole mission in the front seat because you couldn't change. If you change seats, then for some period of time, nobody's at the controls. Right. So if it's time for the Copa to get landing currency, he's going to fly in the front seat. And this caused some stress between the pilot and Copa teams. And sometimes you had to find another team that could get along better. Um, And so my, this guy was telling me, he had a really good story about this. They were, they would fly a three-ship across the Atlantic Ocean to Spain and Portugal to pull nuclear alert in the back in the early 60s, and they would coast out on the Atlantic coast of Florida, and they take a dead reckoning heading to Europe, and straight. There was, east. There's no GPS. There's straight no, east. Yep. Just fly that heading. You know. So they're out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, three-ship. They're outside of UHF radio, and military you always uses UHF ultra high frequency radios. And they're outside of UHF range of anybody but themselves. And the, the, there was a storage bin that the co-pilot had someplace. And the, the front seat pilot didn't have any extra room like this. So he carried the pilot's lunch in the co-pilot storage bin. This is the way the guy told me the story anyway. <laughs> and so in this three-ship, there was a pair of these pilots that were known for not getting along. Right? And so out in the middle of the ocean, obviously intended to be on interphone, but instead on the radio, because all you got to do is push the wrong button. This happened all the time. You push the wrong button, you you know. So he's, he's, the pilot says, hey, co-pilot, pass me on lunch. And somebody in the formation heard this and recognized the voice and without hesitation jumped on their radio and said, get it yourself, fuck face. Which, which, which you can't do. <laughs> you can't know. do. And he said, when they got back from Europe, those guys still weren't talking to each other. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how true the story was, but he had me laughing. And I'm sure it's similar to things happening.
0: <laughs> oh, shit. What other airplane was cool back then? It's a, the, the era of the cool airplane was nineteen. 19- Fifty through nineteen seventy-five. Yeah, right. a lot
4: of what the U.S. Air Force calls oh, the Century Series fighters—the F one hundred, right. F one hundred right. one, F one hundred two—those are cool airplanes. Uh, the designers could make fast airplanes. Then the problem was right. they couldn't make fast airplanes go slow. So they they had some unfriendly characteristics if you weren't careful about your airspeed.
0: Right. The the F one hundred four. The t thirty three was the trainer version of the, of the, uh, P eighty. That's what they called that. Yeah, the, the, the World War Two, just basically a, a World War Two fighter with jet one jet engine and right. I think, the
4: I think at the end of World War Two they got, four or five of those to the continent. I don't think they ever saw any combat with them. So that that morphed into the T thirty three later. Right, really solid basic design. Another one of those. Not planes. a very big aircraft. Yeah, and just another one of those planes that the original design was just so good that it just got adapted right. to all kinds of roles and.
0: You know. Right, like F eighty six.
4: Yeah, yeah,
0: solid airplane. Yeah, when I was swept wing version of a T thirty three,
4: basically. Oh, well, I think there's more than just that. Right, you know, it was, a, it was a much more of a barrel design, you know, wrapped around an engine, kind right. of thing. I actually saw F eighty sixes flying when I was overseas, um, and there was contractors, civilians flying them, and they were what they were doing. they were getting paid to to tow targets. For, for the F-16s and F-4s to shoot at. So they, they let out a, a, a drone, not a drone, that's not the right word, a drogue right. on a cable. And then right. the, the, uh, the fighter pilots could make passes trying to shoot at that that drogue. Oh, that sounds you know? safe. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but the, uh, the those guys, the civilians that flew them were, were really... There were retired Air Force fighter pilots with long hair, you know, right. back when you couldn't. Right. And they, they were having time in their life, you know. Oh, I'm sure. Flying these planes. things around the Pacific to different locations. And, you know, they'd right. fly a sortie a day, go to the club, you know. I mean, <laughs> so what, what a good
0: deal. Get paid a lot of
4: money. But, it, but in the meantime, you got, you know, young fighter pilots shooting at your, your, <laughs>
0: right. your drug, your yeah. ass, basically. Uh, yeah, that's. Uh,
4: they call the, it the dart shoot at the
0: dart. The dart. Huh. The uh, the F one hundred and four. Now, there's an interesting airplane. That was the thing. Was not even aerodynamic. Yeah, it, it, at it below two hundred miles an hour it had no glide ratio. It yeah. but for some reason, air forces around the world liked that airplane and used it up until just like. 15, 20 years ago. I think
4: the Italians were the last users, and I don't think it's been 20 years since they retired them. I, I could be wrong.
0: but it, it, The Germans used the damn thing. Oh, yeah, a lot of them.
4: I have friends at work that flew them yeah. in the German Air Force. Um, the Air for- the U.S. Air Force quickly named it the Widowmaker Yeah, because of those. Well, those d- single engine.
0: Yeah. And no glide ratio. No glide ratio. The wings would cut you. They literally would. From the the leading edge of the wing was sharp yep the Is crew that, chief
4: would they were, there was yeah. guards they would put on them after right. the that that's what i
0: heard yeah. I mean, from you probably because it was just you know the the thing and the and the the, the airfoil was kind of like not really an airfoil wasn't it yeah
4: i think it was totally symmetrical airfoil huh? so it had no camber to it right. there's no it didn't have that usual oil, airfoil shape right. so you get lift by by putting angle of attack on it right you know? And planes like that, T-38s like that. It's an almost symmetrical airfoil. And so when you – when you and I remember as a student, they demoed this. They would put you in 34 degrees of bank in a T-38, but not use any back pressure on the stick. And so the plane would almost fly straight ahead just in a bank. Really? And, and if you got a positively cambered airfoil, it'll turn if you if you just put it in bank because now there's lift going that way.
0: Right. It tried to shove you.
4: Right. But, uh, but uh, with a symmetrical airfoil – you put it in bank and then you pull the nose across the horizon, because you got to get horizontal lift by creating angle of attack that way. Right. So. Well,
0: that's interesting. So, so the, the F-104 was kind of an extreme version of that.
4: That's my understanding. Yeah, and it was just it was designed for straight line speed, nothing else. Right. Just go fast, uh, and that's why they adapted the, the first astronaut classes, flew a special version of it that had a rocket motor in the tail. Mm-hmm. Just above the exhaust from the main motor.
0: I think that is the aircraft that Jaeger was talking. Oh, it could about. be. You yeah. know, now that I think about that, about that interview, it might have been the F one hundred and four he was talking about because they he had, there was a they added a rocket motor to the thing to let it do this acceleration thing at that at that altitude. Yeah, and that, that could be. I, it. I believe that's what that's the airplane that. And I could be wrong, but. But,
4: and uh, I, I did hear that it had terrible spin characteristics. So it would go flat on you.
0: That's what that was the that was the incident he was talking about in that interview. It's apparently a very famous thing that happened to him during that. And he he was in a flat spin, upside down. Yeah, what and did? and got out of the thing in one piece. I can you imagine maintaining any kind of orientation? Upside down in a flat
4: spin. I'm sure he had to just sit there till they got the denser air, so he could that's, get some. What he did, he, he just it, you know? wrote it
0: down, yeah. and then and then apparently got it back up, and punched out. Yeah, and crazy. survived the damn thing.
4: Yeah. Those guys, those test pilots in the 50s, are crazy, crazy people, yeah. almost as crazy as the World War One test pilots. You know, those right. guys at the time there was no science of aerodynamics. The people building airplanes knew the wing had to be in that shape, but they didn't know why. They didn't they understand know. what was going on. Right. And so somebody at some point has to walk out to that plane, and the designer, the builder, says, I think it'll be all right. You know, take off and find out.
0: <laughs> That's <laughs> what your job is. Yeah. My job is to build it. Your job is to fly.
4: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. If you were killed in an airplane in World War I, it was like 75% chance it was an accident, not combat. Their own plane was way more dangerous to them than the enemy planes were. <laughs> yeah, they, were they were crazy. A lot of the the really famous ones, like the Fokker triplane, the Sopwith Camel, had had radial engines. And in those days, what that meant was, yeah, the cylinders radiated out from the middle. Right. But the propeller was fixed to the engine. Right. And the entire and engine the, the
0: whole engine block rotated right. with the propeller around the crank.
4: And that's how they cooled the engine. Right. And that's – now think of the torque.
0: Think of the think of the moment of inertia. Yeah, 50% of the weight
4: is out there spinning around out in front of you. Crazy. you know. And then most of those planes didn't even have a throttle because they did everything at one speed. Right? So you take off at 80 knots, you climb at 80 knots, you cruise at 80 knots, you maneuver at 80 knots, you land at 80 knots. So if you could hear one – You
0: turn it on, turn it off.
4: Had kill switches, most of them did. And so that's how you descended. So if you could listen to one land – you know, it would go, uh, uh, and you got to time this now to land. <laughs> wow. Inherently nuts by today's standards. Yeah. So, and even as late as World War II, if you were killed in an airplane, it was 50 50, it was an accident. And some of that was the airplane design, again, was just not where it is today. But a lot of it, too, was everybody's training pilots as fast as they can. Right. And so they're not screening them as carefully as we do now, and, you know. Um, and so, they basically, if you can get in that airplane and survive, you're, you'll get pilot wings. So, right. And again, those planes were enormously complicated to fly by today's standards. Because the pilot had Not to control the. the mixture, the propeller pitch, the temperature of the engine. You know, while he's flying an airplane, and people are shooting at you. The workload must have been insane in a P-51 or a Messerschmitt 109.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Can't imagine it. Yeah,
0: flying the airplane was as complicated as fighting the airplane oh yeah those right. both
4: of those plus spitfire and the and the messerschmitt had a terrible accident rate in training because they had very narrow landing gear and the thing would ground loop oh you mean uh, like under yeah because because the, the wheels retracted terrain. outward so when they're down oh. they were close together right right you know? right uh, so now you start stomping on the rudder or something and it's going to ground loop it's going to get up on a wing and right. crash you know yeah. I've I've read more than one book by guys who flew those two airplanes and they talked about the fatalities and training that they had. Is it one mistake? Plus right. tail draggers like that are just more complicated to land and take off than tricycle gear airplanes are. It's mm-hmm. yeah, usually on takeoff roll. you had to get to a speed and push the stick forward and you weren't in the air yet. Miscalculate that, prop strikes the ground, and you might survive. Maybe. Yeah. So I again I just can't imagine what the workload. Like I said, the B-17, staying in formation without an autopilot just, oh, my God, for hours on end. Unbelievable yeah. you know how they did it.
3: Um, did, uh, did you ever have to take go pills and stop pills?
4: No. In SAC, we absolutely never did that. Really? Because of the associated nuclear weapons. Oh, uh, okay. they They were so hard over about that. Um, one of my best buddies was a tanker pilot, mm-hmm. and he had bad, really bad acne. Yeah. And so they prescribed him tetracycline, pretty common antibiotic. He was grounded for weeks while they made sure there was no adverse effects. Wow. You know. Fighter pilots did did. did well uh,
3: I remember pills. that famous story in Desert Storm where we had a bunch of American pilots gun down Canadian ground troops. and when they got back they were blaming it on their go pills because they were so strung out and they thought that they were enemies.
4: I don't know. I don't I didn't hear that one. Yeah. But because yeah. they
3: got court-martialed, and in, um, in their court-martial, that was their defense. They, they had it strung out on these go-pills, because at the time, they were mandatory, and then after that, they said they weren't mandatory anymore. Yeah.
4: But because of the nuclear mission, we yeah. could not use— the rule was you can take a Tylenol or an aspirin. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can bring a nose spray with you on the flight mm-hmm. in case you get a sinus or ear block. Yeah. But if you use it, you're grounded as soon as you touch down.
1: No shit. Yeah.
4: You have to go get, really? get get another physical done they were hard over. if you had allergies them. um you're probably not going to get sort of like you're probably not gonna pass a play physical if you have serious allergies probably wow um uh, yeah they were there was a concern uh, think about all the stuff that we knew all the classified stuff we knew there was concerns about getting general anesthesia and I don't care what was wrong with you. They're not, they would not let you go under general anesthesia until a flight surgeon cleared it. Yeah. And, and there
0: was probably somebody sitting there with you the whole time. have no doubt
4: in my mind. Yeah.
0: Right. So that's how SAC badly. had the
4: opposite. I was shocked when I found out that fighter pipes were taking go pills because I had never heard of such a thing. Cause we just did not do that in the buff. And you know, you say you didn't take anything but a Tylenol or an aspirin. You know, if you needed something else, you go to the flight doctor.
0: Bombers drop bombs. Yep, that's what they do. Bombers drop bombs. and Bombs explode. And the explosion of a bomb fucks things up on the ground. All right? Uh, bombs are interesting devices. Uh, I, I guess we've got conventional weapons and nuclear weapons. All right? Conventional bombs can uh can be of several types, right? Oh yeah. You, you've got uh, how many different types of bombs and what are their what are their applications?
4: Oh um you got general purpose bombs, G P bombs, okay. Those are typically five hundred pound Mark eighty twos or seven hundred and fifty pound M one hundred seventeens. The common one that right. we, that we carried. And they they just have blast. You know it's
0: produce a shockwave. Right. That disrupts Everything right. underneath the the exploding ordnance.
4: Right now, the Mark eighty two can be fitted with penetrator caps that allow it to penetrate a certain amount of like reinforced concrete before the detonation occurs. Right, they can be fitted with fuses that make it detonate slightly above the ground. It's like an extended fuse that sticks out of the nose, depending on what what you want to do to what the kind of target. Right, but they're they're gravity unguided weapons. Once once they leave the bomb, they're once they leave the bomb bay, they're just going to fall.
0: Right, right. Um, So they're oriented straight down, and since they're leaving the airplane at whatever the cruising speed is, 450 miles an hour, there's a trajectory that eventually erodes to vertical, right? Correct. How long does it take for that trajectory to erode to vertical? I don't remember exactly anymore.
4: Within a, within a minute or so, I think it's basically. It's all I...
0: basically just vertical yeah. at that point.
4: I know when we drop from forty thousand feet, they would travel about five miles.
0: So in front of the, right. five miles horizontally along right. the, along the axis of. And so we typically did the not bearing the airplane is is right assumed when the thing leaves the aircraft
4: right. So we typically did not overfly the target if you're bombing from altitude. You release the weapons; they're on their merry way. You turn.
0: You get the hell out of there. Right. Yeah. And how long does it take to to for the bomb to fall from forty thousand feet to the ground?
4: I wanna say a minute and a half, maybe two minutes. It takes quite a while. I mean, that's a long way.
0: Right. You
4: know? So it, Because all of it's, that's,
0: its vertical speed when it leaves the bomb bay is essentially zero and it has to and then I guess there's a terminal velocity depending on the aerodynamics of the, of I'm the sure bomb is. itself. Yeah,
4: yeah. Right. Again, i I you know, the guys who really knew that kind of information were the navigators. Right. Because they were the guys that employed the weapons. They were the weapons experts on a bomber crew in my day. The, the crew commander was in charge of the mission, and he was the pilot. And right. He had a co-pilot because no one guy can fly the airplane all the time. just mm-hmm. can't do it. Right. Plus, there's there's so many controls running that one human being can't reach all of the stuff. Right. So you, that's why you need two. And the co-pilot, he's in, he's in training to be a crew commander. Right. right. And then you got a navigator downstairs who, on a well-oiled crew, gets you from takeoff to what's called the initial point, the last turn point before the target. And at that point, he turns it over to the bombardier, which in B-52s we call the radar navigator. He conducts the bomb run.
0: So the navigator and the radar navigator are two different guys.
4: Yep. They sit down the lower deck. Uh, the radar navigator is the senior of the two guys. Right? All right. The guy in the right seat, the navigator, is a, an apprentice to become a radar navigator. Uh, and they're really the central part of the mission. Right, that navigator, that junior navigator, initiated most of the operational checklists and um, was and when I first got in, in the bus worked really hard because there wasn't there wasn't inertial navigation systems and GPSs and he sat down there with a plotter and a board and, a, and did a we, bunch of math, problems. Yeah, what we basically. call the whiz wheel and flight computer mechanical. It was right. basically just a circular slide rule. Right, um, yeah, and I just worked his butt off. You know, right. um, the copilot was working pretty hard because he was also the flight engineer of a very complicated airplane, Right, you know? which is why we really wanted to have a lot of experience as a copilot before you upgrade to crew commander. So you have a full understanding of all those systems and how that all works.
0: And who's it. the fifth
4: guy? Then you got, you got a, uh, um, ECM operator who we always called the E or EW electronic warfare officer. Right? He's trained as a navigator. And after navigator school, he goes to electronic warfare school, and those guys tended to be the uh, the highest IQ. On the after a while, if you're also being closed, you could you could almost always pick out the e-sim operator on a, on another crew. Must be that guy. <laughs>
0: you know? Right.
4: You can tell by the way they talk. Because wh-
0: what is he? So what's his job?
4: Well, what made it really different uh, when I first got into B fifty two most electronic warfare was was. What they call noise jamming. It wasn't real sophisticated, and so he would listen. He had a bunch of sensors to listen to a bunch of frequencies, and he had to be able to identify from sound. Um, part of his check ride was he'd go into like a hearing booth, and they would they would play beeps and squeaks for him, and he had to be able to say, well, that's an SA two guideline operating on upper side lobe, and you know I need to jam that with my ALQ one twenty three and. It was a very, very cerebral job, yeah, and that's why you could kind of pick these guys because they tend to have high IQs, really smart yeah. guys.
0: Um, so his job basically was to interfere with attacks on your aircraft. De-
4: him and the gunner were the defenders of the airplane. The defenders of the airplane. Yeah, we called right. them the defense team. The navigators right. were the offense team, and then there was a pilot team. Right. Um, uh, and sitting next to him on the G and H models was the gunner on the left side of the airplane, but facing aft. And his gun was entirely radar aimed. He had no visual backup at all. Up up through the F model, he sat way back in the tail, and had some visual capability.
0: This is so. This is the little turret looking thing that hung down from the back of the aircraft.
4: Yep. And he sat. And this
0: is a fifty caliber weapon, or
4: there are four fifty calibers up through the G model. Yeah. The H model had a twenty millimeter rotary cannon instead. It was a devastating weapon. The, the same weapon the yeah. fighter's going to carry, right? All right. But if he closes at 6 o'clock, you got a 50% range advantage on him because he's flying into your burst, and we're flying away from his. Right. So when we did practice intercepts with, with for guns, we had to ask the fighters to make tail attacks because they understood it was essentially suicidal to approach a B-52 within gun range. Because the, right. the gunner's got all the advantages. Guns gyro those Those 20 millimeters were... A almost fully automated system way ahead of their time for being developed in the fifties because mm-hmm. they were, they were the same tail gun that the B 58 had. Right? right. And it was designed to be uh, operated from up, the forward, from yeah, facing right. forward by a guy who's also got to do ECM stuff. Right. So his workload on the gun had to be low. So it had a lot of automatic features and everything. Back in the days when there's vacuum tubes and relays again, it's way ahead wow. of this time. It's so simple to use that when I was a young copilot, um, we, uh, we had to go out and do intercepts. With, I'm sure it was with F-4s. The day before the flight, the gunner sat me down and gave me an instruction on how to use this thing. Um, then we got, to, got up there, we swapped seats, and I got in the gunner's seat, and I got tracking gun kills on the first couple guys that closed at 6 o'clock. Never done it before. amazingly wow. simple. Just a, just a lethal weapon. So when they, when they took it off, in most of our opinions, the, the B-52 really took a hit. You don't have legal defense. Why would
0: they have taken that off?
4: Um, General McPeak was the chief of staff of the Air Force. (laughs) And one of our rewards for winning Desert Storm was he fired all the gunners as soon as we got back.
0: Well, good.
4: That was one of his many crimes against humanity.
0: Well, good. Too effective. Yep. Killing people and breaking things. Yep. So we've got a.
4: Yeah, I don't want to get a
0: handicap.
4: I don't want to go on and on about that guy, but the, I don't know of an officer who served under him that would have spit on him if he was on fire. No respect for the guy at all. Oh,
0: not to dwell on this, but what was his fucking reasoning? I, what, what, did, his reasoning was it's,
4: it's antiquated equipment, and we don't need this anymore, and the fighters can protect the bombers. And But that's stupid.
0: Why would you not want a redundant system?
4: Yeah. You know, they, they talked about doing smart things like putting Stinger uh, missiles on her. Mm-hmm. You know, the Stinger was, it was a designed as an infantry-launched uh, anti-aircraft missile. Mm-hmm. And so it was designed to do what we call a face shot. It was de- designed to shoot at the fighters coming right at you. Right. would have been perfect to put – and with the weight of a to 2 you could put 50, 60 of those things back there. Right. You know, but no, they just fired the gunners instead. Just took away the capability. Took away that they were the, the very last – Defensive aerial gunners in the United States history were fired after Desert Storm By the way and I'll I'll get this on here the thing I'm probably most proud of of for 20 years of active duty was I was made an honorary gunner in 1987 really And that's not something they did for retiring colonels and crap like that. It took a unanimous vote of every gunner annoying and any one of them could veto you anonymously so I, was, I got that certificate in my cube now at work. And I got my gunner's wow. coin. You know, in the Air Force yeah, right. now, there's this big thing about challenge coins. Well, the gunners invented that. Yeah. A, their mascot, their unofficial mascot was a bulldog. And so they got Mack trucks to produce a bunch of coins. It yeah. had the Mack bulldog on one side, and on the other side it says, you make the difference. And that was the gunner's coin. And when I became an honorary gunner, I got one of those. And there's this whole game you play with you got to have it on you at all times and stuff. And so I learned to, when I took a shower on alert, I would put that thing in my mouth. <laughs> because if they if they ask you to see your gunner's coin and you don't have it, you None. owe them. Okay, you owe them a beer or a Coke or something. Or something, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so it was a whole game to play. The gunners right. played amongst themselves. And if you're an honorary gunner, you're a gunner. Right. right. And they'd love to get an officer this way. I would yeah. stand outside a building at shepherd. 20 years ago, back when I was a smoker. I stand outside smoking, and this car comes up, stops, and backs up, and out jumps a guy I hadn't seen in 10 years, the gunner. And he's at Shepard to do some other school. And he runs up and he says, Got your coin? That's great. Uh And I did. As a matter of fact, <laughs> yes. I've had to stop carrying it because I'm scared to death I'm going to lose it, and there's no right. replacement.
0: No, no. So no. I'll
4: get busted now because I keep it in my desk drawer at work because right. I, I don't want to end up, you know, falling out of a torn pocket or mm-hmm. or something like that. Paying for a coke, whether obviously. Well, I just want like like to lose the coin. Yeah, you know. Right. I accidentally put it in a coffee fund one time, and I was the this building I was in was all officers, so there's no gunners there, and everybody knew as an honorary gunner. So as soon as that coin showed up, they knew exactly where it came from. Right. So they brought it over to the squadron gunner, you know, and he called me up and he says, uh, "I get you your coin back. Cost a keg of beer." <laughs> Sold. Next gunner's <laughs> party, right. I buy the beer. <laughs> you got know? to you got to take your your right. medicine with it, you know. But that's yeah. just a cool tra- The gunners had all kinds of cool traditions and yeah. stuff, and that um, was just sad to see him go. Culturally, yeah. I thought it really hurt the bomber community to not Well
0: uh, yeah you got a general making political decisions isn't that good yeah isn't that good so when you uh when you bomb a target when you bomb a target and i understand that you had never dropped a nuclear weapon because nobody has since nagasaki right and well, not in anger. Well, not in, Yeah, we've we've test the drop
4: the test dropped some.
0: We've test dropped well more than people think. Yeah, you know, quite a quite a few more than people think. There have been what two hundred and sixty-five or seventy uh, sub-aerial. Uh, I don't know the number. Nuclear. It's in the high two hundreds. Uh, nuclear tests. In, uh, in in the United States, you know, if you the out in Nevada and out in the Pacific, we we blew up a hell of a bunch of bombs. Oh yeah! Because we had to figure out how they worked. Exactly. And uh, those of you that have not seen the atomic bomb movie. One
3: thousand fifty-four tests from the United States.
4: But that's not John. Yeah. that's all includes all tests under yeah, underground. That's, underground. Uh, yeah. yeah that's underground
0: yeah that's underground but yeah we we did sub atmospheric tests we yeah. did 200, 216. 216 yeah. okay yeah that's that's good so there have been there have been 216 uh, atmospheric tests of nuclear weapons there have been a bunch of underground tests that you know aren't really the same thing but but uh uh those of you that have uh, uh, not seen the atomic bomb movie need to watch the atomic bomb movie. It's narrated by Shatner, and it's it's footage from uh, nuclear weapons tests uh, conducted by the United States. And one of the most unforgettable things you will ever see is shot Baker. This was. At Bikini Atoll in 1946.
4: Is that right? Yeah, it has been right up 20- to the war. 1946
0: yeah. is right after the war. Yeah. 1946. They were still learning about the about the technology, and they they did a surface explosion. That what they did was they hauled a bunch of ships they were going to scuttle anyway out here to this and ship.
4: some captured Japanese ships and stuff. Yeah. That and you know
0: they just had a bunch of a bunch of you know, floating targets basically out there and they anchored them and they wanted to see what a nuclear weapon would do to these damn things. So they took 50 or 60 ships out there and they're anchored in various positions and shot Abel was the first one and it was... That one was like uh, 200 feet in the air or something like that.
4: Yeah, it's an air booster. It was an
0: air burst. It was an air burst and it fucked a bunch of stuff up real bad. And then... Shot Baker was the second thing, and this was uh, by today's standards not a terribly high yield weapon. And I don't remember what it was. Neither do I. I don't remember what it was, but it wasn't a nine megaton device like we made thousands of. It was a, it was a, a low yield, normal atomic bomb not a fusion weapon or anything but it was because they didn't have those at the time but it was a might have been boosted I don't know but this this is the damnedest video you will ever see you are watching 150 foot long battleship holes it, it all right so let me back up this bomb was set at 300 feet of depth of water I believe that's,
4: I think that's right. I
0: believe it's 300 feet deep. So they, they sink the bomb and they, they hang it off a raft and it's 300 feet of water. And then they detonate this thing and you're at a a position, you know, 10 miles away where they're taking this video and the goddamn thing is lifting these 150 foot long holes straight up in the air. Standing them on their end. Well,
4: yeah, some of those ships are a lot longer than 150 feet, too. And I'm just, it's just
0: the the volume of water that goes up in the sky. It is the damnedest thing you have ever seen. If, If you haven't watched the Atomic Bomb movie, and you're still listening to this thing we're talking about here, you're crazy. You need to go right now and order that. The Atomic Bomb movie. And it's a fascinating thing to watch. It really is. But uh, – so, so nuclear weapons are a, are a theoretical thing, basically. What do you mean well, by that? By that, I mean their application is theoretical since we haven't done it but twice. Right. Okay. So. We haven't done it but twice. We don't know precisely what a nine-megaton weapon would do if it was dropped in the middle of Houston. Or better, dropped in the middle of Los Angeles. I can yeah, I, had with, this I can live with that. <laughs> but it. But so we don't actually know what would happen. We we're pretty sure from all the testing. We're pretty sure what the effects would be. But this is these things have a completely different use in in terms of tactical use than do conventional weapons. Sure. Right.
4: Yeah, but with the so-called tactical nuke, you're still looking for you're looking for blast effect. Right. You know that the the, the weaponeers consider the, now, the radiation let's about, and wait, fallout.
0: Let's the, talk about their tactical and strategic are two different things. Right. All right. right. Strategy and tactics.
4: Right. So a, a tactical nuke is one. It would be a battlefield nuke is another name for it, where your your target right. is enemy armor and infantry. Right. And,
0: a, this is the target. We need to destroy this thing right, right here. So those strategic applications
4: are, are are big things. Big bombs. Take out hardened targets or large targets. Or and, geography. Right. right. Yeah. And so typically in the big the big nuclear war plan that was called the PSYOP, that was that was so much a part of my life for so many years. PSYOP stands for single integrated operating plan. Uh, and because all of our nuclear weapons were they were all in one big plan for the with a big retaliation each year the plan got more and more complex to give the president more and more choices
0: you know and th- um, it, this it, we're we're talking about the response to a, a soviet attack
4: exactly that's the only way we would have launched right it's, that's where the uh, deterrence comes from you can start it but you can't win it is what we're saying to him right okay um uh, those weapons tended to be large weapons delivered by bombers all those missiles, submarine and intercontinental ballistic missiles, tended to be targeted on the defenses against bombers. Now, that's a very broad-brush statement. There's lots of exceptions. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but the, the missiles couldn't carry the payload that bombers could carry. So essentially, in a broad-brush statement, missiles knock down the defenses because the bombers aren't going to get there for hours after you've launched the missiles. And, right. then, and then we'll, we'll go in and carry the heavyweight weapons and take out the target. That's the strategy. Point. That's the, the, again, very broad brush overview of that, that big SIOP plan. Right. Okay. So as we got more and more warheads, there was more and more things we could target, you know. Mm-hmm. When the air-launched cruise missile came along during the Carter administration, it became clear that the targeters didn't even know what to do with all the warheads they had. I don't know that we ever disclosed how many warheads the United States had. I don't know what it was. But it was a lot. Thousands. Thousands. Oh, thousands, yes. Um, and I did see, a, at the time, a, a top secret uh, thing that showed a map of the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact, and it had these clear overlays for every hour after we launched this big attack. And I got convinced that if we ever do this, there's not going to be anybody to shoot at me by the time I get there. <laughs> we're we're going we oh, to bury these nuclear had that much nuclear
0: ordnance. Oh,
4: it was amazing. So I... The hard part was going to be we're not going to survive because we had no shielding from radiation. We didn't even have any armor plate on the airplane. And, right. and so we're going to fly through all that fallout <laughs> from thousands of warheads. <laughs> you know, you're not going to live uh,
0: more than a couple weeks. But theoretically, uh, this is still not a suicide mission.
4: U.S. doesn't do kamikaze missions. <laughs> they were all planned. And, they, you know, they were all planned. I had faith that that there was fuel to do to get done what we wanted to get done. However... Right. okay. If you take off and shortly after take off, you have malfunctions. There was a decision tree to go to in our in the kit that we had, and you would go through this. You know, if this is your problem, then do this and yada yada. And what it got down to is, in the extreme, if this is really the thing and we know this war is on, uh, if you can reach your first target and get a safe, what we call safe escape distance beyond, then you're going to go. So because this is it, right? You know, and we need that one more weapon. So we don't plan suicide missions, but it could end up almost being like that. Right. And I really think we most of us, of course, all, like you said, hypothetical, but right. I really think most of us would do this because the fact is the reason we're doing this is because the Soviets have just killed my wife and kids and everything I care about. Right. So I yeah, gotta, this is done in response to bad.
0: just losing a poker game. Right. Yeah. Right. This is everybody's motivated.
4: Yep. I really think we would have been. Yeah. yeah. It, we'll never know, because thank God it never happened. Right. But, you know, we couldn't know that on the time, you know. I no. spent seven days at a time out there with, with uh, you know, I lived feet away from that nuclear-armed bomber, and the whole point was get in the air as fast as you could. Right. To go pay them back. So it was a very grim view of things, you know. Right. There, there was a, the tankers, we would, on a nuclear mission, we'd refuel almost as soon as we got to altitude, and the tankers would top us off. If we needed to, there was a code we could pass to them that said, give us all your fuel. And in their standpipes, they had enough fuel to turn out of our way before they flamed <laughs> out. So that's how grim the whole thing was. Give
0: it, us all of your fuel. Yep. Wow.
4: And they, you can't bail out of a case of 135.
0: There's no ejection system Yeah. No. And you can't manually, And you're over the Arctic Ocean yeah. anyway. so. And you can't happen.
4: even manually bail out of it. They, they stopped carrying parachutes some time ago. It was just kind of a it's joke. just no way to use them. Yeah. Right. So if all this right. happened, but again, remember, if this happens, it's because the world's going to end as we know it. Right. So. All right. So how do you
0: drop a nuclear bomb? All right. So you've got a payload of nuclear bombs. How many are in the airplane?
4: Oh, it all depends. I've, I've pulled alert where this few is two. Right. And as many as 20. And so
0: would you drop two bombs in a different way than you would drop 20 bombs obviously you'd have to there'd be a different I mean, operation to uh, yeah to do hypothetically
4: that, right? there's three kinds of ways to deliver a nuke you can do an airburst where it detonates at an altitude Okay. This is how you get the widest spread destruction. If you detonate it at exactly the far, one radius of the fireball, you're going to get the most destruction on the ground.
0: So they know the maximum fireball generated by the weapon.
4: That's why all those tests. Right. Yep. Um, uh, you can do a ground burst, or it detonates like conventional munitions on collision with the ground.
0: Right. And or you can do you've a—, got a uh a rather abbreviated version of the... You get less widespread less destruction. widespread destruction. destruction but it the, might
4: be more useful to dig out a, an underground target. Right. right. And then the third way is you can do what we call a lay-down release. And in this, you release the bomb, and it has parachutes that, that carry it to the ground while you're escaping.
0: Right. So it slows it down to yep. give you time to get the hell out of there.
4: Right, and so it's going to lay on the ground for whatever time is programmed into it
0: couple right. of minutes?
4: Yeah, a few, minutes, a few while we, minutes while we try to run away, get safe escape distance. Right. Um, and not certainly not enough time for anybody on the ground to do anything about it. Right. You know, it's going to go. Right. And all of, the, all of the sorties that I pulled alert on, all of the releases of bombs were laid down releases because we're going to be at extreme low altitude to escape the defenses.
0: So you're at 1,000 feet
4: or less. That was going to be pretty high on a combat mission.
0: So you drop the the bomb out of the bomb bay. It's under a parachute immediately as it leaves the... Yep. So it slows down, and it's obviously sturdy enough to whack into the ground without without breaking. Right. Right. All designed for that. And again, if you know how nuclear weapons work, the impact does not trigger the nuclear weapon. So... You're getting the hell out of there, climbing. Apparently,
4: yeah. Usually, usually stay low. Really, stay low. Climbing will expose you to more of it, and it bo- you to defenses, more defense. Right, yes, yeah, but yeah. it'll expose you more of the blast too. Oh, really? Yeah, it's better to be down. Kind of Think I of it as, it as it going yeah. over your head, right. kind of. If you want to sure. think of it that way, you, some of the terrain will shield you from right. some of the
0: direct. I see that. I yeah. see that. And if you climb up, now you're exposed to the to the.
4: The shock the, wave. The
0: shock wave, the yeah. spherical shock wave, more than if you're down being protected by terrain, right. trees, you know. So we're escaping just with speed, or, right. basically.
4: And so we we knew in advance what the, the the bomb was programmed to know what our safe escape time was. right? And that at, at that time, then, it would finally go off. Right. right. And you're not that far away from it. I mean, that's kind of a subjective statement. Right. But it, I would... I would think the distance is probably smaller than most people would guess. It's it's just going to be a few miles. It's not going to be 30 miles. miles or something. Yeah. Right. Cuz by being down low and everything you're, you're the the weapon isn't as destructive as a lot of people think, honestly. I mean it's certainly more destructive than conventional weapons, but people look at pictures of Hiroshima, okay? And they they think that the bomb did all that damage. The fact is the fires that the bomb started right. did all that damage. Did all the damage. The city is made of wood and paper, burned like a right. cigarette, you know. The initial blast, in fact, some of the survivors were underground in a, um, I think it was a library, I think, and only a few thousand feet from the ground zero. But because they were protected, they survived.
0: Right.
4: And other people that were three times the distance away didn't because they got a full blast of gamma radiation and they're done. Right. You know, or the blast wave killed them. So right. most of the destruction you see when you look at these these aerial shots of Hiroshima, most of that was fire started by the not the right. nuke. Uh,
0: our firebombing campaign at Tokyo killed far far more people in one night. In one night right. than both of the atomic the nuclear weapons yeah. together yeah. did. That was Curtis LeMay's. He's coup man my God, that was. Yeah, they actually was, they,
4: they calculated the mixture of high explosives and incendiaries that would create a self sustaining tornado of fire, and it would feed on the buildings as it moved through the as town. As it
0: moved through Tokyo, yeah. six hundred fifty thousand people. I don't remember something that. to that effect. Some insane number of people died in the in the firebombing of Tokyo, far more than. Yeah, we killed with the two nuclear, the more famous. And Tokyo wasn't weapons. the
4: only place to undergo firebombing. Right. You no, know? well, there was a lot, a lot of civilian casualties.
0: Yeah, it was an ugly situation. There's and no, you know, to
4: the to no. the strategic planners, it's well, they were targets. That's okay? what
0: strategy. That's what strategy is. Yeah. Strategy is a big thing you do to make the other side stop fighting with you. Yeah. Right. Right. So yeah. in, in that way, in that respect, you can do strategic bombing with conventional weapons. And that's what carpet bombing is, right? Sure.
4: Yeah. A carpet bombing, in my experience, usually the target is infantry. Right. right? Uh, like in Vietnam. B-52s dropped so many tons of bombs under the jungle. And the, the critics will talk about them bombing this empty jungle. And that's not an empty jungle, okay? There's, no. in, there's infiltrators. There's a Ho Chi Minh trail down there, right? Valid targets. Um, and just because you can't see it because of the can- uh, the, the canopy, canopy right. doesn't mean you're not killing people down there. Right. You know, at on, the whole point of Kaysan, set up an artillery base that gives the North Vietnamese a choice. If you leave that artillery base there, it's going to cut your supply trail. So you must put a set-piece battle, in fact, to overrun that place. That was the strategy. When we knew they had their people together, the B-52s came in and killed them by the thousands. That was the purpose of
0: it. it was the decoy for right.
4: It was to get them into a fixed location, into a killable position that they had to do. They had no choice. Yeah. They had to do that. We even killed a North Vietnamese general during one of those attacks. So that was that was massively destructive and a massively successful effort. Right. That the historians have written up as a mistake.
1: <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah. Politics. Right. Dictates the history. Right. Right. But, yeah, you'll see these things critiquing Vietnam all the time and showing they're they're just bombing, blind bombing in the jungle. One of it was blind, all of it had targets.
0: Yeah. yeah, we don't drop bombs not knowing where they're going. Yeah. They're too fucking expensive.
4: Yep. Yeah. The closest I ever saw to that was during Desert Storm. Um, some of the bomber B 52 units got scud hunting missions especially after they got lucky and killed 14 Air Force people with one of their Scud missiles. Um, right. So this mission was they would load up with cluster bomb units, and they would orbit over uh, uh, Kuwait and the Saudi Peninsula. And if, if the satellite detected a Scud launch, they would run in and just spread those CBUs over a lat-long, latitude-longitude, hoping they could get the Scud launcher before it moved. And I don't know if we ever and got one. And a scud
0: launcher is a device that has these little missiles.
4: Yeah, it's a ground oh. launcher. It looks like an 18-wheeler with a big missile on the back. Right. You
0: know? And so um, if you go over there where the where you detected its presence.
4: Maybe it hasn't moved yet.
0: And Maybe it hadn't moved yet. Maybe it's moved a little bit. But if you do a, a radius from that original detection point, then you are likely to... Disrupt the yeah. It was so uh, that's what, that's and that's a strategic. I'm, I'm thing, sure that right?
4: the, the intent here was to tell you it's not free. If you're going to launch these missiles, it's not free. Right. We're not going to just let you do this, right? And I think that mostly came after there was they they well, got I lucky be, and they hit a barracks on well, a base in Kuwait.
0: Well, I said that was strategic. That would actually be a tactical attack. That'd be more but, tactical, yeah. yeah, since it's a a target that needs to be taken out, right? Right, right. But if you're you're going to deny the use of a piece of property to the to the enemy, and just disrupt every piece of existing infrastructure in that area, and that's that would be a, a strategic type thing yeah. that you would do with a whole bunch of 500-pound bombs dropped one right after another on top of this target.
4: Yeah, like during World War II, the U.S. went on a ball-bearing campaign with their B-17s. Because it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that a modern army moves on ball-bearings. If I can deny them ball-bearings, I'm going to affect airplanes and ships and tanks and everything. Everything yeah. that rotates. Right. So they went on for, for a couple months. Almost all the targets were ball-bearing factories. Yeah. Um, in the end, we find out after that the was war— That Dresden, right? Dresden, I think that was in the—no, the, the, uh, Dresden was a firebomb bombing. Schweinfurt, I think, was... was Leipzig
0: was... Uh, yeah. but like there was a ball-bearing factory in Leipzig.
4: But we found out after the war, after the strategic bombing survey, by the time we started attacking these ball-bearing points, the Germans had already dispersed the industry pretty well. And right. we, didn't, we didn't hurt them all that bad with it. You know, we, the, the strategic bombing survey sometimes is touted as showing the failure of strategic bombing by, by opponents. In fact, it was a success. It just wasn't a success the way we thought it was going to be.
1: Right.
4: We thought we we're going to deny them their factories and their ball bearings and their oil, which we did some of. Right. But its major effect was it made the Germans expend huge amounts of resources to Moving defend against the it. Moving
0: shit around.
4: And every bullet right. they fired at a B-17 was a bullet they couldn't fire at my dad and his armored halftrack. You know.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: And that was that part was the success. They had to spend. So, they couldn't just let us do it. So they had to expend massive amounts of resources defending against it, mm-hmm. and that was the major positive effect of that strategic bombing. So it was definitely worth doing. You know, it just right. it wasn't. We were kind of surprised at where the effect was. We thought it was going to be right. denying them resources, but actually it was making them expend resources. Right. You know? So it right. worked. It was worth doing. In Japan, it worked more the way we thought it would. You firebomb the whole city; the factory's not going to be there anymore.
0: So. When, uh, when you're going to carpet bomb a target, how many ways are there to do that? It seems like you could line the aircraft up. Well, if you're going to, or you could, or you, nose to tail, or wingtip to yep, wingtip, exactly, and, and get two completely different effects out of the, out of the the application of those.
4: Right. So if you want to well, put. You want to put a lot of bombs in a wide area. Then you fly up, usually a three-ship formation in a V shape, okay, uh, and they all release at the same time. And you put a lot of bombs in a large square mileage, okay. Right. But if you want to just pound, now what the, would that be for? Uh, again, infantry that you know is dispersed. Right. You know, um, the jungles in Vietnam where you you can't pinpoint each guy, but you know they're down the, there.
0: You know, you know, in a you know the area they're in. Right. So you,
4: so and so, sometimes yeah. that's called area bombing. Too. Um, the British called it area bombing in World War II. But there, there's another way. Um, if you want to continuously hit the same target or contiguous targets that are all in a line, okay, then you can line the guys up nose to tail. And mm-hmm. um, you normally we flew a mile in trail and stacked up 500 feet. So each guy was 500 feet higher than the guy in front of him. This keeps you from flying through his, the guy's bomb train in front right. of you. Uh, and then you, you don't release simultaneously. You release as each guy gets to the point. So now you're going to have three bombers all dumping on the same target. So you're not going to have as many square miles,
0: oh, okay. but you're
4: going to put bunches of destruction into a small area. Can
0: you imagine what the uh, hell that is like on the ground? This oh is This God. is why when the— The whole thing just turns to— Oh, okay. yeah. Just disintegrated vapor all around.
4: We uh, we uh, knew the ground war was about to start because the targets all changed to carpet bombing and, and that kind of bombing of the Republican Guard on the Kuwaiti border. You know? mm-hmm. And that's when we knew, okay, two, three days of this, the ground war is going to start. You know, And that's why when it started, there's film of, of Iraqis trying to surrender to drones because the survivors, just they're not hardly soldiers anymore at all. They're just... If you live through this, you're going to be bleeding out of your eyes and ears. Your internal organs will be turned to mashed potatoes, you know. Nice. Just, you're not a fightable guy anymore. So it's it's devastating way to do business. Yeah. And, and you can't stand up to it. And, uh, no, I,
0: I don't guess anything could withstand such a,
4: such a treat. No, I, I was sitting in England because I didn't fly any combat. I planned missions and brief missions instead because I didn't have my own crew. You had to have your own crew to fly missions. Um, and by then I was a staff instructor pilot anyway. Um, I was, remember sitting next to a nurse at the officer's club there at Fairford. And we're watching CNN International. And the so-called expert says, well, this bombing like this, this isn't doing any good. They, the, the Iraqis have had six months to dig in there. And they're not really. All they're doing is rearranging the sand on the desert floor. What a moron. God, <laughs> <old buddy. laughs> this was the same guy a few weeks earlier. I was sitting with this same nurse. And he says, when the ground war starts, it's going to be a massacre. Uh, the uh, 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 American tanks are in a crack, they're going to break down in all the dust and sand. And, and, you know, the crack Iraqi army, which just fought an eight-year war is going to be oh, re- re- ready hardened. for them. You know? They're a sharpened sword. Yeah, yeah I remember yeah. all that shit. And so the same nurse, she's there to, to man a hospital that we expected a lot of casualties. And so, of course, her concern is, gee, do you think this is true? Am I going to be having to deal with a lot of casualties? And I said, do you know where the U.S. Army does their training? In the Mojave Desert. They've been doing it there since World War II. They're absolutely a desert force. That was the war the U.S. Army trained and equipped for since Pearl Harbor, a a war of maneuver without any chance of civilian casualties. There wasn't an army in the world that's going to stand up to the U.S. Army in that circumstance. Nobody, nobody. God, so mind. what a moron. This
0: yeah, time. I remember all of that propaganda that was circulated before. Yeah, I mean, even I was shocked that, by just was,
4: how light our casualties were. We were all expected more than was that.
0: Just, what, a couple of thousand, something like that? Oh, yeah, I'd be surprised. I mean, the whole damn thing, yeah, right? Yeah.
4: When we deployed, they told us to expect 50% casualties in our B-52 unit. What? So they told us to expect. Has you know, any
0: B-52 yeah. unit ever experienced 50% casualties?
4: No, no, no. But, of course, on paper, the air defenses around Baghdad and those places were pretty dense, you know. But what wasn't factored in by whoever thought of this, no doubt, was the effectiveness of wild weasel fighters. The guys' whose job it is to go down and lure them into firing a missile so that they could shoot a missile back down its throat. Incredibly
0: Reveal their position.
4: Yeah, incredibly effective thing at suppressing the surface-to-air missiles. So yeah. just like the North Vietnamese, the, uh, the Iraqis learned the first night, if you bring up your radar, you're going to die because that thing rides the radar beam back. We can see your radar. Yeah. Those, those missiles were designed to ride that, ride that radar beam back to the antenna. And they're hypervelocity anti-radiation missiles, harms, and they're incredibly effective. So that's why we were able to go high altitude in Desert Storm is because those guys suppressed all that. On paper, it was dense defenses, but in reality, but you couldn't. We you couldn't turned afford. them
0: useless. Yeah,
4: you can't afford to turn on your radar. Right. So what my guys would describe to me typically is they'd be over Iraqi territory, and they would they would see a SAM surface air missile radar come up over at two o'clock, and it would sweep them twice and go off. And then five minutes later, they'd see another one come up over at nine o'clock, and it would sweep them twice and go off. And then, obviously, what they were doing is they were calculating where we were going to be in the future, and they would fire off surface-to-air missiles unguided by radar, which means they're just expensive anti-aircraft artillery rounds. Right, right, And they never got anywhere near any of our guys. But that was their only w- answer to this, because if they if they kept that radar on, they were going to die. Because we we sent guys, you know, in these F four Gs, which is the Weasel variation, right. Right down on the deck trolling for you to. Yep. Right. Those guys had a big pair. Because right? they're down there, they're trying to get you to shoot at them. You know? Wow. So,
0: <laughs> but Yeah, I read about the wild weasel thing. That was, what, what an amazing, and and it, it's kind of interesting to me that they use the F-4s for that. Uh, I you think know, it was, I, I would have thought there was a better aircraft for that.
4: For I that think it was its, its, its ability to accelerate, you know? The very first wild weasels were F one oh fives, two seat F one oh fives. Right. And nothing accelerated at low altitude faster than an F one oh five. Because they could run the afterburner at that at very little thrust. So when they needed speed, they could slam that at, and it was already lit. So it would be right. I guess it felt like just getting kicked in the ass. Oh yeah. And so that's why the
0: two three G's. Yeah,
4: that's why the F one oh five was chosen as the first weasels. And I don't really know why they've shifted to the F-4G. I honestly, don't know why. Maybe it could carry more ordnance. Or
0: is that is that mission being performed right now with? They don't have airplane?
4: specialized squadrons doing it anymore. It, it's an additional duty for certain air-to-ground fighter units. Right. So, they it's one of several things they may do. You know, so, in bombers, we kind of didn't want to see the dedicated ones go away. Those are fighter pots we'd buy drinks for them. <laughs> they made our life easier. <laughs> they, they cleaned
0: things up yeah, for yeah. you.
4: Taking a, you know, after Francis Gary Powers got shot down, we were all forced to go down low, everybody. Right. Um, uh, and because low is your only chance against the defenses. If you go high, the Sam's going to get you right. eventually. The problem with going low is now everybody with an AK-47 gets to pop one off at you.
0: If, you know. They put a 7.62 round in your engine intake.
4: Yep, yeah.
0: Some guy on the ground can...
4: Yeah, a huge percentage of the losses in Vietnam were ground fire. Um, lost over 100 planes in air to air, if I remember right. But that was a fraction of the total losses. It was ground fire that brings them down. So if you're a country and you're buying a service-to-air missile, what you're trying to do is force your opponent down to where the guns can kill him. You don't really care if the missiles get them. the
0: cheap guns yeah, can kill
4: You don't really care if the missiles get them or not. Right. Because it's going to force him down to where... Well, Wild Weasels took that away. Right. So we could go back up high again where we were immune. The only right. gun that the Iraqis had during, well, uh, during Desert Storm that could theoretically reach us was this Russian 100-millimeter anti-aircraft gun. And all you had to do was offset uh, half a half mile to the side where someone no longer could reach you. So they banged away, and they shot him you know, without guiding it. And so the guys would see flag bursts on there, you know, but it was never anywhere near them. No. There wasn't, I don't think there right. was a B-52. The most threatened B-52 was a guy that took one of those harm missiles in the tail. <laughs> right. That's how good that harm missile is. He had a, he hit an airplane going 300 miles an hour. Wow. Uh, that, 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 they didn't disclose all that until after the war.
0: But what is the biggest danger to a B-52?
4: Biggest danger. You I mean from the enemy?
0: From the enemy. What is the most effective thing he can do to you?
4: Well, Ground fire, if you're forced down low, is pretty lethal. And it's hard to counteract it, you know. It's hard for your ECM operator to jam it because you're not going to be exposed very long, you know. Um, SAMs are bad if you don't take them out, if you don't eliminate them, you know. Uh, I got shot down at Red Flag a couple of times by F5s. And that was a T-38 that they put guns on. They sold them some foreign sales of Vietnamese, bought some. Mm-hmm. Very good fighter, but it was a very basic World War II day fighter that went fast. You know, Had no radar on it. Right. And that's why they got us at, at Red Flag, because we couldn't yeah, see he or it. Yeah, you
0: said that was his favorite airplane to fly. Doesn't surprise me.
4: Yeah. No. I think there's thousands of pilots out there that'll tell you the T-38 was their favorite airplane. Yeah. It's just a, a pilot's airplane. You know, I had a few hundred hours in it after pilot training because in the 70s and 80s, co-pilots in SAC were dual-qualified in their primary airplane and then a T-37 or Mm T-38. And then Grand Forks, we had T-38s. So we just logged time in those things, you know. And you can't imagine two more different airplanes in every possible way than a B-52 and a T-38. So it was a good experience. B-52,
0: I think you told me one time, it's like flying a building.
4: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, one of the the jokes, and I can't remember it exactly, but it goes something like this, uh, the eight engines have more power than 25 locomotives. Uh, there's more, there's 15 miles of wiring in the airplane, right? Yeah. Um, and it flies like 12 locomotives <laughs> <laughs> being pulled by 15 miles <laughs> of cable. Miles <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not, from a From a stick and rudder point, it's not a pilot's airplane. Right. But the pilots love it because it has a tendency to bring you home, you know? Right. And and it can do things other airplanes can't do.
0: Well I guess that's why they're still using the gun. It's well, playing after sixty years. They've right?
4: never really here's him here, I'm editorializing, the Air Force has never really asked for replacement. By that I mean every spec they put out for a new bomber does not carry more stuff further. And those are All the right. two things you care about. The B one right. on paper can carry more. But our standard joke was, yes, it can carry more. And if the target's near the departure end of the runway, it can attack it.
2: <laughs> but it
4: just it doesn't have the range. It burns right. so much fuel. It just doesn't have the range. Right. It does have speed. In Afghanistan, it's been proven pretty useful because there was always a B-52 and or B-1 orbiting with these, these um, joint direct attack munitions, a guided bomb. Um, and if, if it was a B-52 and you're an army lieutenant on the ground, you say, hey, I got a target for you. If he was on the other side of Afghanistan, it was a much longer wait for him to get there than for a B-1. The so B-1 like those four big afterburners, and he's smoking. That, there's nothing faster right down on the deck than a B-1. It's, in a straight line, it just goes.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: So I've talked to more than, more than one of my fighter product friends who said, it's almost impossible to intercept the things low altitude. They just run away from you. You just can't, right. you can't get a good intercept geometry on them because they're moving so fast. And that was what it was designed for, was speed. So in Afghanistan, that's been pretty handy, I understand.
0: Right. A, so if you've got a combination of B-1s and B-52s, you've got the whole mission pretty thoroughly ass-covered. Yep. And why would you want to spend hundreds of billions of dollars developing a new airplane that does what the B-52 has been doing for 60 years? Yeah. I guess it just doesn't make any sense.
4: Well, they've put out the spec for a new replacement, the B-21. Um I haven't seen I don't know if they've released all the details on range and payload, but it's clear from looking at the artist's conception that stealth is their major thought.
0: Why don't they just remanufacture some new airframes for this silly ass thing? I mean, they know what to do already, yeah. and they could go in and tweak while they're remanning the, the, the B-52, come up with a, a new engine combination. Now why would you want all to right. rethink the wheel?
4: I don't know. They don't ask me these things. Because
0: it's not about the product. It's about the contract.
4: Right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, the F-16 is like that. Uh, We we acquired more than the Air Force said they wanted. And that was a political decision to keep people working. Sure. Not that that's a bad airplane. It's been been an incredibly successful airplane uh, after its initial teething problems. You know, Um, But the Air Force said, we want X, and Congress said, you're going to get X+. plus. Right. So um, right. the acquisition process is highly political because it's, sure. it's politicians that control because the it's first it's
0: politicians things. making decisions about money. Yep. And there's always a different agenda Yep. than what the end user wants.
4: Right. So I liked the historian in me, likes the old system that created the B-17. And that was the Army Air Corps saying, we need a plane that carries this many pounds this far. That's We're not going to tell you many engines. We're not going to tell you.
0: You saw those it carries problems.
4: this shit this far, we'll buy it from you. This is what we need. Yep.
0: Need it to do. You figure out how to make and, it do that. And so
4: Boeing builds a prototype at their own expense. The taxpayers mm-hmm. don't buy that. Right? All right. Because there's a potential for billions of dollars here if you get the contract. Mm-hmm. But the taxpayers right. don't pay for all that development. Well, that's your problem, not.
0: I mean, that's part know? of the cost of doing business.
4: And, and that's the process that got us B-17s. It got us the... The P fifty one. The P fifty one started as a private project by North American Air, North American Aircraft Company. They they really? were built a plane, hoping they, just they could had sell an
0: it. idea that there was, If we build this, maybe there's a market for exactly,
4: it. exactly.
0: Right, um, which uh, kind of makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? That's yeah. what the developers should be doing.
4: Right, but nowadays, you know, they want they complain it's too expensive, or so the taxpayers got to help us do the prototypes, and you know, I, I, if I was the king, I would go suck it up. Because there's a potential for you to make right. billions of dollars. Don't
0: here. do it wrong.
4: Yeah, and then you'll get the because contract because
0: you'll be paid yeah. if you do it right.
4: Yeah, and this this whole thing, it, one of my favorite stories about the true story about it, the P twenty six P shooter built by Boeing, interwar airplane, low wing monoplane with fixed gear. Yeah. Boeing built it where it didn't have any, any external bracing by cables. Like you look at World War One airplanes, they right. always got. A cable. Um, it didn't need any external bracing. The Army Air Corps generals didn't like it without bracing. They didn't trust it.
0: Because they didn't like the way it looked.
4: So, yeah. So Boeing went back and put completely unneeded cables mm-hmm. all over it. And,
0: Vestigial
4: cables. Yep. And sold it to the Army <laughs> Air Corps. <laughs> <laughs> then they bought it. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, so the process wasn't perfect right. even then, but you right. know I, I think it was better. This is how you get a Sherman tank that won the war. This is how you get... Missouri-class battleships that won the war, you know. All right. the hardware, not just airplanes. Right. As you get this one, private enterprise says, I can do better than my competitor, and if I do, I'll make billions. Right. That's a system that works.
0: Right. Uh, well, it, the back to the B-52, what an amazing device that things turned out to be. Incredible. I mean, there's not anything in the world like it.
4: There's guys there's, flying there's, it now that, say, my grandfather flew it. Maybe
0: the same airframe, possibly
4: the same <laughs> airframe. There's not a hundred airframes left, so right. very possibly the same airframe. Okay, oh, and I think still out there is one of those that that uh, had the vertical stab knocked off, in a in a so they had no rudder or vertical stabilizer.
0: And, and landed they, it.
4: Yeah, they flew it hundreds of miles. And they landed it back at Edwards, and uh, they called up Boeing. And said, well, what do we do with it? And they said we'll send some guys down and get it. And they took off and flew that thing without It the, flew the thing flew the,
0: without the vertical stable. Flew
4: the thing back to Seattle, fixed it, and I've flown that airframe. It was at Grand Forks when I got there. It was an H model. I can't remember <laughs> the tail number anymore. But you knew it because when you reviewed the maintenance forms, traditionally the first form in there for for uh, inspections that were overdue or sometimes never gonna be done. Right. There was a write up by Boeing test pilots that they should inspect the airframe because they had sixty seconds of inverted flight. After they put the tail oh. back on. That
1: thing. <laughs> yeah. Are you serious?
4: <laughs> they, that's what the write up said. And that was their, they did that because they put that tail back on there and they wanted to test fly it, you know. And they wrote up, I don't know if they're telling the truth, they wrote up 60 seconds of inverted time. And that, that was famously the first overdue inspection in those forms for that tail number. Because since it isn't designed for inverted flight, probably it should be inspected. But we don't know what inspections to run because it wasn't designed for inverted flight. For
0: doing it. <laughs> yeah. We don't know what to look for. So, Well, let's check it anyway. Yeah.
4: <laughs> nobody knows how much of that was just bragging by these test pilots, but that's what the write-up was.
0: So uh, B-52, what an amazing invention by Boeing. Probably the smartest thing they ever did.
4: Uh, in my opinion, yeah.
0: Yeah, obviously. So, well that's our show Uh, I hope this has been as interesting for you guys as it has been for Scott and I every time we get together we talk about I just pick his brain for an hour or two every time he comes to the gym and I thought it's so damned interesting I'd just let you in on some of it so next Friday we'll get somebody else on here it probably Mm -hmm. won't be this good but (laughs) Thanks, Scott. Thanks for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. And we'll see you next time on Starting Strength Radio.